Aloha, everyone. Welcome back to um, Hawaii Association of the Blind's 54th State Annual Convention. My name is Art Cabanilla. I am the president of HAB, and we are so happy to have you here in, and joining us as we continue going forward with our convention here. We had a pretty good morning, I believe, uh, with our speakers that we had and all the different door prizes that were being issued and handed out. Congratulations to all of you who did get some of those door prizes. We do have a few more, um, probably about 10 or so left, I think. So we might save some of that for the more towards the evening or maybe a little bit in the afternoon as well. I'm not sure what um, our MC is gonna do. However, uh, if you stick around, you just might be lucky enough to win one of those. Um, you know, this is where we usually do our business portion of the convention. And this year, fortunately, uh, we don't have much business to, to do. So it's not going to take very long. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, I'm not sure how we're going to do this because we have a lot of time to kill. But anyhow, um, I just wanted to give a shout out again to uh, Janet Dickelman for coming out earlier and giving us the uh, national report. Uh, a lot of good information there shared. And, you know, um, I would have been just as nervous to do that report, Janet. So, you know, <laughs> again, kudos to you. <laughs> um, well, you know, let me just go forward and we will uh, play it by ear here. So, uh, the first item of our on our business section has to do with the um, voting of our delegate to the national convention this year. Uh, usually, <clears throat> the uh, president is usually elected as the delegate, and um, so in speaking with the nominating committee, they. Uh, informed me that they would like to motion that the president be elected once again as the delegate for this year's convention. And so, with that said, are there any other nominations? Seeing none, hearing none um, from the floor, I will then say um, those of you who are in favor of the motion that was uh, previously mentioned about the delegate, um, anybody who is in favor of that, please raise your hand, and we will have the host count for us. This is Jim. I say aye. Aye. So we're raising hands, people. So we have 24 hands raised. We have four, 47 participants. Okay, so and eleven panelists. All righty, so looks like the eyes do have it, and so congratulations, Art. Um, <laughs> yep, more work to do. Um, okay, then moving on to um, the two resolutions uh, that we have um, to work with. So some time, some time ago, um, I want to say somewhere maybe around November, I think, October, November, 
we had several meetings or, or several discussions <clears throat> during our general meetings regarding membership, um, outer state members, and so on. There's a lot of uh, this and that going back and forth. So the uh, committee has um, addressed all of these issues. They've uh, revamped it, and that's what we played earlier in, in the day as, as the convention started, and that happens to be bylaw number nine. So um, I would probably want to say at this point the committee is um, recommending that, you know, the uh, resolution 2021-1 be uh, voted on and approved. So we Members who leave the state but remain in good standing shall have their membership retained except they shall not serve on the board of directors or chair standing committees. However, they may complete an existing term. B, in rare instances where persons are allowed to join ACB, though they may never have been residents of Hawaii, they may not hold office or serve as standing committee chairs. Okay. Um, so, again, that was um, our own Maureen Sheedy, uh, HAB secretary, who had uh, previously recorded that and uh, read it for us. Um, so, with that being done, again, we're going to do the hands, the raising of the hands. And once more, people, please, when, if you're raising your hands to signify I, uh, leave them up. Do not put them back down until uh, we have finish counting. So all those in favor of passing this, um, say aye. We have over 23 out of 59 participants with raised hands. Okay. Now we have 24. Okay. So then um, I believe that is a pass. So, okay. Congratulations to everybody and thank you for uh, Maureen for helping out with that. The final resolution, or not resolution, but the, um, yeah, resolution, sorry, is 2021, and um, you folks can put your hands down, by the way. Um, so 2021-2, uh, we will play that shortly. But let me just say that, again, you know, uh, normally this is the one that we would be thanking the hotel and, and all that kind of good stuff because of all their help that they've done for us through the convention. So being that we're doing this um, virtually this year, we came up with a, something a little different. So uh, I hope you folks like it. 21-1, requesting the American Council of the Blind to actively support legislation or negotiations in order to create uh, better access to the internet for blind persons, whereas many internet websites are not available to blind persons because they are only reachable via the mouse and blind people need to use the keyboard in order to obtain access to them. And whereas it is important for blind people to have access to such websites for information, news, hobbies, and other interests 
including entertainment. And whereas many website owners may be totally unaware that their sites are not accessible to the blind. And whereas ACB has spent much time and energy with some success in creating descriptive video, which has largely been beneficial for entertainment purposes. And whereas internet access, which has been previously mentioned, has a wider range of information possibilities. And whereas creating internet access by the use of the keyboard is a far easier process than creative, creating descriptive video. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the Hawaii Association of the Blind at its 54th annual convention this Saturday, May 1st, that we urge the American Council of the Blind to take whatever steps are necessary to create access for blind people on any and all websites operating in the U.S. and elsewhere when possible. And be it further resolved that copies of this resolution be transmitted to Gabe Griffith and Jill Noble, members of the Resolutions Committee of the American Council of the Blind, with the intent of presenting some form of it on the floor of this convention, and that a copy of this resolution be transmitted to Dan Spoon, President of the American Council of the Blind. Again, thank you, uh, Maureen, for reading that. And I apologize, folks, I had my numbers wrong here. That was the correct one to be read, 2020-21-1, which has to do with uh, that particular resolution. Um, so any um, discussion on that before we vote on it? To, I mean, I, I'm pretty much in favor of the, the resolution, but um, I guess the resolution committee can straighten out some of the language because I'm thinking that there's certain specific areas where we would be most likely to try to access, and some of these uh, areas are not as easily accessible. Maybe now if people have things like Picture Smart and JAWS, you know, they could get more at things, but some of us don't have the, the training or know exactly how to do that. So if somehow it could be worded so that it would apply to not only people um, who can use a computer, but who are kind of like computer for dummies type thing. Um, I believe this is just a draft at the moment. Okay. And it was meant mostly to uh, alert ACB of our concerns. Okay. So I, I can I can see that yes, um, the committee will be most likely doing some sort of revamping to this um, before it's a final final. Yeah, because there's a difference between accessible and really usable by people who are not as computer savvy as others. Correct. Correct. So again, um, we'll call for the vote and all those in favor, um, please again, just raise your hand and keep them up until the hosts can complete the count for me. All together, 20 hands raised. Alrighty then. I'm going to say that this uh, resolution has passed. Congratulations to all you folks on that one. 
Um, given the, the remaining time that we have for this, for our business section, uh, I'm going to ask that we play the next resolution, um, 2021-2. Resolution 21-2. Resolution thanking ACB Radio for broadcasting the Hawaii Association of the Blind Convention. Whereas ACB Radio is broadcasting the convention of the Hawaii Association of the Blind nationally for the first time. And whereas HAB has members who are not presently in the state and therefore they will be able to hear our convention. And whereas other members of ACB will be able to hear as much of our convention as they so choose. And whereas the expertise of ACB radio is beneficial to any and all affiliates of the American Council of the Blind. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the Hawaii Association of the Blind at its 54th annual convention this Saturday, May 1st, that we thank ACB radio for broadcasting our convention in particular and for its efforts on behalf of ACB in general and be it further resolved that copies of this resolution be transmitted to Jeff Bishop, Chairperson, ACB Radio, and to Dan Spoon, President, American Council of the Blind. All right. Uh, thank you, Maureen, again, for uh, doing the pre-recording of that. Okay, folks, um, unless there's really some real serious opposition to this, um, I would like to call for the vote. And um, so if you are, if you have any opposition to this, then please raise your hand right now and we'll take count. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that that's going to be the shorter count for us. Um, all those in favor, say aye or raise your hands for us. And I do believe we're going to get a 100% on this one. Looks like we're, we're at 25 and that yes. looks like that would take us to a positive um confirm of this resolution so thank you folks um and thanks thank you again acp radio for your help with this um business section okay guys um as i said this was a very simple um portion for us in terms of our business uh we're going to resume then and go back into the convention itself i shall uh return later on in the evening to conduct the um the, the mu um evening portion and right now i shall hand this back over to antonio so antonio it's all yours thank you okay so let's get back into it so we did a little business now it's time to uh listen to people that is not us <laughs> but um I, I will just uh how about i throw out one quick door prize before we get into it because we are just just a couple minutes ahead of schedule so why not why not give something away um, and I'm going to keep doing this throughout the rest of the uh, the afternoon program, and, and we'll see how things go. Maybe I'll save one for the evening or not. I, I don't know. We'll 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 figure that out as we go along. But I will I will keep giving some stuff out here because we have plenty more wonderful things that people donated for us. Uh, so let's see the one that we have right now. That is going to be another, whoa, $40 gift card to Longs and CVS that was donated by, oh, let's see, oh, Maureen and Jim Earhart. Wonderful. Thank you, Maureen and Jim. So 
Let's see who's going to take that home. That is oh, Elisa Byrne. Elisa Byrne. Congratulations, Elisa. Um, you know, I've been craving some of those. I think they're called Chinese pretzels. Those are good. <laughs> so if I would have gotten that one, that's what I would have gotten. Um, although $40 is a lot. But anyway, 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 let's get back into it. So uh, the next person that we have up is someone that uh, is always a pleasure to talk to. I've gotten to chat with her a couple times. I've uh, Maybe it was last year or the year before I sat next to her at one of these uh, state conventions. And it's, like I said, it's always nice to get to talk to her. Um, so she is, uh, let me let me pull this up because I want to make sure I get it right. So where is... I know who I'm introducing, but I, like I said, I want to make it, I want to make sure I got it right. So teacher, she is a teacher and orientation, uh, my O&M, I think we all know, orientation mobility uh, instructor for uh, the visually impaired. And uh, she is serving the Honolulu district. Her name is Amy Downard. Thank you for the introduction, Antonio. You are an awesome MC. I want to compliment you also. Well, and <laughs> thank you, you thank you. Okay. <laughs> keeping everything going smoothly. Uh, good morning, or I guess good afternoon now to everyone. Um, I wanted to uh, thank you for inviting me to speak today at your convention, virtual, um, and happy 54th anniversary to HAB. I know y'all were just celebrating 50 years, and here it is four years later. What happened? I blinked and four years went by. So thank you, uh, and I hope you're having a great convention. I've really been enjoying it. Happy May Day, you know, late day for everyone for Saturday, I mean, first day of May. And to my good friend, Don, who will appreciate this, happy Kentucky Derby Day. As a resident of Louisville, Kentucky, um, I just watched the big race and boy, was it exciting. <laughs> so my horse came in second, but ah, didn't have any cash on it this year, maybe next year, but uh, it was a very good race. <laughs> So thank you everyone for um, inviting me. And today I wanted to talk a little bit about orientation and mobility. Uh, before I get into that, also I wanted to thank HAB so much of all years, what a year this has been for everyone, especially for our uh, teachers and uh, our students and our families trying to get educated uh, you know, during the pandemic. So thank you so much for all the support you give us all the time, but especially this year, it has been a game changer, a lifesaver, all kinds of wonderful things have happened uh, through your generous donation for us to get our technology really beefed up and the instruction that we needed. So thank you so much for that. But going into orientation and mobility, um, I rode the bus for the first time this past week, the first time in a year. And I know some of you may be cleaning off the dust of your traveling shoes and canes and whatnots and getting back out there and gearing up to really move around again. So I wanted to share a couple of tips and tricks that uh, some of the people shared with me over the years. And also uh, just some things you might want to do to get you know ready to go back out into the world, uh, some isolated drills that you can try. Uh, starting out with some of the tips and tricks, uh, just over the years, I've, I've, I've gotten a few tidbits here and there. And you might want to put this on your agenda sometimes for your monthly meetings. Uh, just or, um, just to ask people what they've been doing in, in their mobility. Have things been going well? They have some trouble with their certain uh, crossings here and there. Are there some new canes or tools that they've been using? But to have conversations about it and to help support each other. 
I know a few years ago there was a new intersection configuration over uh, with a new Safeway being built in Honolulu, and there was a lane that didn't follow the normal, you know, near parallel surge that we're used to. So um, it was good for people to get the word out to know that that was not um, uh, a great spot to be when you're trying to cross that, you know, one little lane over there. Uh, one of the tips and tricks that uh, someone shared uh, with me recently was, you know how you get a brand new cane and you're trying to fold it up if it's a folding cane and that last joint just won't fold. It just won't fold real well. So um, he suggested to fold it in the opposite direction, to start at the bottom of the cane and fold it up to the top. And for some reason, it didn't get stuck when you were, you know, folding it in the opposite direction. So that's a little tip to try if you have a brand new cane that's a folding one and you want to be able to fold it up, try to fold it from the bottom to the top instead of from the top to the bottom. Uh, someone else had talked about the cane as far as if you have an aluminum one and uh, the joints sometimes get stuck. It's always that one stubborn joint that you're trying to unfold. So there's a few different strategies to make that a little looser. You can put it on all of the joints um, or just that one that keeps getting stuck. So one person used a piece of wax paper and they just rub that wax paper on that one joint. And I guess whatever's on the wax paper would come off. They even said that you can use a candle, just make sure you don't put too much of the wax on there. And, um, and that was um, a strategy that she used when she was trying to unfold her cane, but that aluminum one would get really stuck in that one joint. So a piece of wax paper, someone else used a piece of um, glycerin soap, and they would rub that on the aluminum joint right there, and that would help them uh, be able to fold and unfold it a lot easier. Someone else, um, I'm not a pencil user, I'm more of a pen person, but uh, just a regular pencil, lead, they would scratch, that they would rub that lead part uh, on the joint, and that would also loosen it up. That little glossiness, I guess, would help it loosen up. And someone else tried something, and don't try this because it did not work well. She tried some Vaseline, said, oh, that should work real well. So they rubbed some Vaseline on that joint, but then the joint kept coming apart when they didn't want it to. So that is a strategy of what not to do. So don't put Vaseline on your joint, but you could try a pencil, wax paper, a glycerin soap. You might have tried some other things as well. So when you're talking about your cane or you know, different things that deal with mobility, it's good to share these tips and tricks. Someone else had, over the years, always told me, and she told me uh, she was a good mentor to my students, she would always tell the kids, do not put your cane on the table. We eat on the table. Would you put your shoe on the table? So don't put your cane on a table. Put it to your side, in your seat, or on the floor, but not on the table. And so we try to always teach that to the kids. Uh, someone else suggested that she just takes a couple of pieces of toilet tissue or a Kleenex and puts it in her bag or purse when she goes out. And that way, when she comes back in, she can wipe off the tip of her cane and just throw it away or toss it down the toilet to flush it. And that way, you're going to keep the tip clean because it touches all kinds of things out in the world. Uh, someone else said that because of the pandemic, they've been using a glove, like um, just a regular a, a disposable glove on the right hand, because she holds the cane with her right hand. And so when she switches hands, if she's like holding onto a rail, she'll have that 
glove on her hand because she uses that hand to touch things as well, but, you know, besides her cane. And the other day, she accidentally grazed a, a part of a fence that would have scratched her hand, but since the glove was on her hand, her hand didn't get scratched. So she plans to keep that glove in place even after the pandemic. Another tip was uh, someone in our group here who travels, and when she goes to a hotel, she may not read the Braille signage that's next to the hotel room. So she places, you know, those lock dots that you put on your keyboards or maybe your microwave to be able to feel where the button is. She takes one of those stickers and she puts it on the back of the door handle before she, um, the part that faces the door, not the part that faces out toward the person. And that way she can just confirm, oh, this is my room. And it's at a place where the cleaners wouldn't clean. Well, I'm sure they clean the whole handle, but um, you can't really see where that sticker is. So that's a little trick that she does when she goes out traveling. Uh, someone else. So we, I don't know um, when you've gone through your training program for mobility, but over the years that might've changed or adapted since you, you know, possibly had your classes. And one of the strategies we use and we teach the kids and adults too, is to flag our cane before we step into the street to cross the street. So when you flag your cane, that just means you're going to move it before you step into the street. You're going to move it. You can do an arc with, touch to the left, touch to the right, then step into the street. Some people will do a vertical flag where they're actually move the cane up and down before they step into the street. Is to get the driver's attention. And these drivers are so distracted in a rush. You know, it used to be the cane would really do a lot of um conversation for you and it still does of course but it doesn't seem to slow the drivers down as much as it used to just by itself so and I know I'll be standing with a cane myself as an instructor and my student will also have a cane and we'll get ready to cross the street maybe one of those crosswalks that don't have a stop sign or a pedestrian signal and we'll wait one car will go by but not stop so we'll wait for a car to stop two cars three cars or nine cars go by and they still won't stop so, um, so whatever we can do to get their attention is going to be helpful for us and keep us safe. So flagging your cane is when you move it uh, up and down or side to side a couple of times before you step into the intersection. And that's to, again, bring more attention to yourself uh, so the drivers will pay attention to you and stop or slow down, especially for those right turners who uh, turn right on red. So another person, one of their tips was that they not only flagged their cane, they would put, they held the cane in their left hand. So um, they would flag their cane and right before they would step into the street, they would actually hold up their right hand in that stop kind of position to face the drivers to let them know, hey, I'm not, I'm about to cross. You have to stop. You know, when we cross streets, we have a bargain. You stop, I go. So that's one of the strategies that she uses. And I've seen that from time to time as well. Oh, so this tip is what I do for some blockers, for some protection. Um, I am in class teaching and then I'll go out and do a mobility lesson. I might come back in teaching. And of course, I'll put some block on my face and my neck and my ears and the back of my neck. But sometimes I don't want to put it all over my arms if I'm only going to be out for a little bit for the mobility lesson. So I use uh, these golf sleeves and I'm holding one up now. And a golf sleeve is just a sleeve. It's just a removable sleeve. Um, I put these over my arms. They do have SPF protection, uh, I guess, in the knit so the sun won't pull through. And uh, it's not a compression sleeve. They, are, they do have something else called a 
compression sleeve to help with circulation. And that's not what this is. This is just to block the sun out. So I like wearing these because I can just roll them up like a pair of socks and put them in my bag and it's ready to go. And if I have a quick mobility lesson um, and already have some block on my face and my neck, I don't have to put extra on my arms. And uh, I usually get these uh, uh, golf sleeves at um, a golf store, got Pro-Am or Roger Don, one of those, a lot of the golf um a lot of the golf courses that have a pro shop to also sell these. Uh, of course, when you buy a sleeve, it's two sleeves in one package. And I'm going to say they cost anywhere from $12 to $20. I usually get them for about $12 to $15, what I've usually paid. They usually come in white, but um, a lot of times you find different colors. So I found yellow, light blue, dark blue, black, uh, no greens, pink, purple. So they do come in a lot of different colors, and they're just so nice to have in the bag and ready to go. Uh, for the sunblock, I do use that Blue Lizard. It's a real thick um, sunblock from Australia, I believe it is, and it has that zinc in it to help block out the sun. But it's really heavy, and you really have to scrub it to get it off of you. So one of my coworkers who's out there, uh, thank you. She let me know to um, if you're going to get that brand to maybe get the sensitive skin. Um, type or the baby type because it's still going to be strong and it's good protection but it's a little bit easier to get off of your body. So those are the tips and tricks so far that I have accumulated. Um, but like I said when you're meeting for your monthly meetings or your gatherings or just informally when you're talking try to put O&M orientation and mobility on the agenda just to talk about it for five minutes. I'm not sure if you talk about you're traveling, um, you know, if you're traveling safely, if you try a few different routes, if you're having some struggles or some challenges or some, sex, some successes, it's good to share all of those. One of the things I wanted to share with you, uh, I was thinking before we've all been kind of home a lot more this past year for sure, but even if uh, you probably might have been home throughout this pandemic without that happening, if you're trying to get out there more often and build up your mobility skills, I wanted to share with you um, three drills that you can do that will help you. And I would say the first drill is, is about sounds. Uh, there's so many sounds when you go out across streets and in the neighborhood, even if you don't cross streets, just to go along your routes. And these sounds can be helpful. They can be landmark sounds. They can give you information about um, the direction that traffic is flowing and all of these different things, but they can also be distracting. And sometimes they can be tricky. If you're listening intently to the sound of a traffic and you're waiting for that near surge, or you might hear a turning car and you're not sure you know, which lane of traffic that's coming in, uh, the, the, the more you listen to improve your skills, the better your skills will become. So I wanted to tell you, don't just listen to sounds or practice those skills when you're on a real route. I would suggest going out and practicing your skills when you're not on a route, just to practice your skills. Say, I'm going to, my New Year's resolution, my post-pandemic uh, resolution is to get out in the world a little bit more and to listen set, uh, to specific sounds that will help you when you are on a route. And that would be the sounds of traffic. So I would uh, suggest listening to sounds maybe on just one street. Don't go to an intersection and listen to all of those sounds. Maybe just go to the middle of a block and listen to that one lane, that one um, 
street of traffic sounds and try to pick that apart. So let's pretend like we're at a previous pre-pandemic HAB meeting and you were meeting um, at a place over on in Honolulu on King Street over by P.E. Koi. And let's pretend that you came out of that a building and when you came out, you were facing King Street, it's right in front of you. And you turn to your right, and now King Street is on your left side, okay? So let's pretend you're right there. And King Street at that point, for those of you who live in Honolulu might already know this, it's a one-way street. Uh, traffic flows eastbound toward Diamond Head. And that lane of traffic that you're uh, closest to is actually, um, well, if you come out and you turn right and King Street's on your left, you're facing the same direction as the flow of traffic. You're facing, your nose, your face is facing toward Diamond Head, and that's the direction the cars are traveling. And the traffic sound is only on your left side. So let's pretend that for your drill is to try to pinpoint the sound as it passes your left shoulder. So if you're using your body, your front, your side, your back, your other side, or if you're using that um, strategy of using an analog clock face, and so your nose, your face, the front of your body is facing at 12 o'clock. And as we go around your body, your right ear, your right shoulder, your right side, that is 3 o'clock. And if you go around toward the back of your head and your spine and your okole, that is six o'clock. And if you keep going around to your left side, your left ear, your left shoulder, your left side, that's nine o'clock. So I'm trying to pinpoint the sounds that I hear at nine o'clock on my left ear, my left shoulder, my left side. And those cars on King Street all going in the same direction as I'm facing on my left side, I'm trying to listen to that nearest lane of moving traffic. So I know that first lane is a parking lane, the one closest to me. So that second lane from me is the lane I'm trying to really pinpoint my listening. And for my listening drill, I'm trying to be specific as I listen. And I'm trying to hear and pinpoint the sound of a car in that nearest lane of moving traffic as it hits that nine o'clock spot, my left shoulder, my left ear. And I want you, if you have some vision, maybe close your eyes, um, keep them open, but I really want you to listen. And I want you to make sure that you're standing, you know, I don't expect everybody to go down to King and P.E. Coy to do this. Any street, I'm just using that as an example. But try to picture yourself at, at this location and as soon as a car in that nearest lane passes your left shoulder at nine o'clock, I want you to say, there it is. That's it. There it is. Just pinpoint that and hear that sound and really know that's the sound of that car in that lane. And I want you to do that at least 10 times. You can do it more, but do it at least 10 times. And don't do it um, the first, second, third car in a row that are really there. Because if not, you'll just be going, you know, there it is, there it is, there it is. So really listen to that sound. As soon as you hear it in your head to yourself, you say, there it is. And then pause for five or six seconds, a reset, and then start listening again. And listen to that sound. It's not 
the lane that's furthest from you, it's the lane that's closest to you at your nine o'clock position. There it is. You keep doing that up to 10 times. And that was your first listening drill. And then stop and take a break. You can do that more, but try not to do it less. Try to see if you can pinpoint 10 exact times when that nearest car, that nearest parallel lane is at that, that position. Because that's the position you would use if you were at an intersection and you want to hear that stir sound going forward. So that's your first listening skill uh, drill when I say be specific as you listen. The second drill in that same location, that same situation, hold on to that sound. I want you to find that same sound, that same lane as the car hits you at nine o'clock there, the sound of the car. I want to make that clear. And you hear that sound of the car at nine o'clock on your left side. You say, there it is, but don't let go of it. Hold on to it as it moves forward. And hold on to it as it passes 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and then it goes away. And that's your second drill, to identify the sound of a car traveling on your side at that nearest lane and hear it and listen to it as it moves forward. And you can let go of it until you can't hear it anymore or as it passes you know, through those 9, 10, 11, 12 o'clock positions on your left side. And that's your second drill. And same thing, do that once, kind of do a quick reset, five, six seconds, and then start to listen again. Find that car as it gets to that nine o'clock position and hold on to it as it moves forward and then let it go. And that's your second listening drill. And then your third listening drill is that you're going to hold on to that sound. You're going to find that sound before it gets to that nine o'clock position as it's approaching nine o'clock, maybe slightly behind you on the left side, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, right before it hits the nine o'clock. So try to grab hold of that sound of that car in your nearest parallel lane that's moving from behind you and then hold on to it as it passes the nine o'clock position and keep holding on to it as it moves forward past uh, 10, 11, 12 o'clock. And as you kind of re release that sound, you don't hear it anymore. Those are three very specific drills you can do to try to really pinpoint that nearest parallel sound. And do this, like I said, in the middle of a block, try not to be at a close to at an intersection. It could be on your left side, it could be on your right side, but try to do that parallel sound drill. And if you don't have a street that's you know, one way like King Street is, it can be a two-way street. Just make sure you're trying to listen for that nearest parallel lane. Now, I'm sure you might be saying, well, Amy and Honolulu, you got all those streets out there with all that traffic. Sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's not so great during rush hours, especially. But um, if you can't do it near your home where you can walk out the door, think about different places you go and uh, perhaps trying to find a place near one of those spots to do some listening drills. It could be near a family a member's house or a friend's house. Uh, a restaurant that you frequent, a grocery store, uh, just some place in the community that you might go. If you still can't find a place, you know, then there are some drills that you can do at home as well. You can get um, a transistor radio. I'm, I'm holding up one now. We should all have one of those in case of an emergency, hurricane season. You could have your cell phone, something that plays music uh, or some type of sound, your Victor Reader stream. Put that in your home. 
on a counter and perhaps kind of wedge it between two books or two, um, put my full nine bottle here, um, between two cleaning containers or something like that. That way the sound is kind of uh, compressed in there, it's kind of localized, so it won't just be spreading out everywhere. And put that sound source on your kitchen counter, a table, uh, someplace out in the yard where you can walk past it. And same thing, try to stop your body, like if, if you're trying to get that surge sound location that was on your left side, try to see if you can stop your body when you get to that nine o'clock position or when that sound is really on your left side by your left ear, your, your left shoulder, your left side, or your right shoulder, your right side. You can try it in different locations and you can look to see if you're correct or reach out your hand to feel if you were correct. Uh, even with the, a radio at home, you can of course keep that in one place and then move your own body and say, I'm going to turn my body, and that sound's going to come, uh, if I'm thinking of the clock positioning, uh, at 9 o'clock. So you would turn your body sideways, so that right shoulder would be pointing toward that sound source. There's a lot of different things you can do in your own home if you can't get out and practice, but still try to be very specific on what you're trying to do. Don't just listen to sounds. Say, I want to turn my body so I can orient to that sound. Even using a fan, a small fan, you can feel the wind blowing toward you. Can you turn your body so that the wind's coming at you at that nine o'clock position? Can you turn your body so you're facing it and it's coming right at your face? Can you turn your body so that the, that fan, that air is coming to your left side? That, um, I think that's the nine o'clock position. I think I said uh, the three o'clock position on the other side or, or the back of your body. If you don't want to do the clock positions, just do the planes of your body, the front, side, back, and your other side. So those are some ways to be very specific. Also, you've got a lot of young people in your group, uh, probably very tech savvy, and I'm sure they can get together maybe some sound tapes, some sound uh, clips, and not just sound effects, but kind of layering sound. Like GarageBand is an app that you can put a layer of sound uh, it didn't have to always be traffic noises, but that would be the most helpful. But it could be um, different animal sounds, you know, birds, and then a cat, and then a dog, and then uh, a bee, and then a horse, because Don and I just love to watch those races. <laughs> and all of these layered sounds, and really try to listen um, to each and every sound and identify them. The more that you can make sense of the sounds around you, that's something that can really help you stay safe. The other two things I want to mention to you um, as you prepare to go back out in the world, or even if you've been out there, you want to sharpen your skills. You want to make sure that you're being specific when you are uh, thinking about the sounds around you and trying to use those to get around safely. The other thing I want to talk to you about is your arc width of your cane. Your arc width is the space that you move the cane from left to right in front of your body and you're clearing the path and checking constantly checking is there something there is there a drop off you know uh, what's going on right in front of me and i want my cane to find it before my feet do so we talk about arc width a lot and that being um about shoulder width apart now, sometimes as we get older, or maybe if we've had a surgery or this or that, uh, our, our, our balance, we, we might not notice it. Um, we might not notice it, 
but maybe our feet are a little bit wider apart for better balance. So you might want to make sure that um, your actual feet and your shoulder width, if you want to actually get the tape measure out and measure to see if they're about the same. But if you're trying to find out what's your true, true arc width, uh, find some things around your house if you don't have a tape measure to tape um, to measure. But from shoulder to shoulder, I just have, um, I was thinking about different things that everyone would have at their home. Uh, I was looking at towels or scarves or belts, but we pretty much all have some kind of a charger. Uh, we are charging things up all the time. So I have um, a cell phone charger cord and it's a little bit over three feet long. So if I put this charger to my shoulders, from shoulder to shoulder, the outside to the outside shoulder. Excuse uh, me, ma'am. Yes. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, yes. Uh, you have five minutes. Yes. Perfect. Yeah, five yes. minute time yes. warning. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much. You. Yes. Boy, it flies by. <laughs> uh, yes, but I had my eye on the timer, so that's perfect timing. So I measured uh, using my cell phone charger, shoulder to shoulder, and I just put a twist tie on one end. And actually I did measure it for real with the tape measure. So shoulder to shoulder to, on me, that was 18 inches. And now for your arc width, how you move your cane, that arc width should go beyond your shoulder about five to six inches on either side. So you're actually adding a foot to your shoulder measurement. So I was looking around the house and I was like, well, what if there's not a tape measure? What can I use to get that extra 12 inches, uh, you know, thereabouts? So I found a paper towel roll and a paper towel roll holder when I measured it, it was 11 inches. So I can put that cord that I measured and I just put a little twist tie on the end from shoulder to shoulder. And so now I can put that against the paper towel roll from side to side or up and down. And I'm going to move that and my little twist tie with the bread. And now I have my true arc width. And so when I put that up to the tape measure, it was about 30 inches. And so I went around the house and I was trying to see, do I have a natural a door frame that's 30 inches? So the front door was 36 inches. So that was too big. I want to be specific with and try to practice my arc width. And so I put it up to a different hallway and that was perfect. It was 30 inches and I could use that to move the cane left to right and get a real feel of what my arc width should be. If you don't have a door frame that's exact, I used, um, you know, like um, I have two, you might have some beverage bottles or some cleaning bottles or some detergent bottles. So I put two of those end to end uh, for that arc width measurement. And if you move your cane side to side, you'll be able to feel your true arc width or what it should be. And so when you try that, if you're trying to be really specific on what is your arc width, uh, let me know, or you might think to yourself, uh, are you surprised? Was that arc width uh, bigger than what you expected? Was it about the right size? Yeah, that, that's about what I felt. Or were you surprised? Oh, that's, that's smaller. I must like move my cane a lot more than that. So that's one way to just to check your arc width with some random things that you have around the home. And then the third thing I want to talk to you about before I end is uh, your hand position. The last thing I did notice, sometimes uh, I've noticed people hold their canes very low. And if you're holding your cane and you can touch your thigh, probably, your hand's probably too low. You might not be bending your arm at the elbow. And the lower your cane grip is, 
if the tip slides off an edge, a drop off, it's not as noticeable if your hand is lower. So that's why we're trying to keep your hand a little higher uh, by bending your elbow and moving your hand in the center of your body. That's probably the third and last thing I want to mention is your hand position. Check your hand position. I notice a lot of times your hand might be to the left or to the right side if you hold the cane with your left hand. And that means that left foot's going to be really protected, but you might not be moving it far enough to the right to protect your right foot. So check your hand position. If you, if you hold your hand straight back, would it hit your belly button or is it way off to one side? If it's way off to one side, then you may need to try to practice trying to get that hand more in the center so that you're protecting both of your feet as you're walking. Wow, that was the fastest 30 minutes ever. <laughs> and that was followed by the, the fastest two minutes in sport of the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> I don't know why I just keep mentioning that. But um, I do want to wish you all a great day. And as you're out there traveling, and you continue to be safe. But try to work on your skills. You can work on them in isolation outside of your normal route. You can stop along your route that you're always traveling on a daily basis and just do some intentful, specific listening drills to beef up those skills as much as possible. Stay safe out there. Continue having a great convention. And I'll see you a little bit later today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. That was, um, you know, as, as I was listening to that, I was thinking to my own experiences and, you know, something that I think like we've all been asked, probably anybody with any kind of visual impairment is probably asked this at some point by uh, somebody that is sighted is, so your hearing must be really good. And um, I mean, I'm sure some of us have really good hearing, but it's always been my uh, opinion, my perspective that it's not that my hearing is very good. It's just that I've learned to pay more attention to it. Than before, uh, you know, when I started experience the, the visual impairment. Um, so, I mean, like like anything, it's it's a skill, right? And it, like, I mean, some of us are forced to pay attention, and some of us um, we just adapt a little more, you know, naturally, so to speak. But um, whether it's sighted, legally blind, or totally blind, I think you know there's so much to pay attention around us, and uh, if we just learn to pay attention, then we'll notice that stuff, and it's it's extremely helpful. So, um, thank you, Amy. Oh, you're welcome. I just wanted to say uh, all the things I said to keep practicing. You know how teachers love to assign homework. So that's your homework, everyone. (laughs) I don't want to send you to the principal's office. So make sure you (laughs) keep working on that. (laughs) Thank you, Anthony. All right. So let's uh, move right along. I do have more prizes, but I'll save that for a little bit later. I'll keep you all in suspense. Um, So next up, we have somebody from uh, California. Again, second person from California. So um, so we have, let's see, let me get this. I want to make sure I got it right. So, uh, field manager. Okay. At the guide dogs for the blind in San Rafael, California. Uh, we've got Todd Jurek. Welcome Todd. Hi. Thank you so much, Antonio. Yeah. Uh, hear me. Okay. Yes. I can hear you just fine. So All I think right, well, I, I appreciate the introduction and I'm so happy to be on this, uh, on the conference today, in the conference on the Zoom, uh, and I want to uh, say hello to everybody in uh, Hawaii that I've worked with in the past. And uh, again, my name is Todd Jurek. I'm a field service manager at Guide Dogs for the Blind. I've been working at Guide Dogs for 30 years, and uh, uh, what 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 I do at Guide Dogs is uh, 
I manage a field, uh, a zone in the United States. Uh, my, my zone is uh, Northern California, Nevada. And I had the great pleasure of uh, having Hawaii as part of my zone, too. So I get to uh, go to Hawaii and see, uh, see the guide dog handlers from our school over there to assist them, to help them and support them for the life of the team and, uh, and a- even after the team uh, to get a new dog if they want to. So that is uh, what I do at Guide Dogs. And I'm very happy today to talk about our guide dog program uh, that we have at Guide Dogs for the Blind. We have uh, two organizations, or two uh, campuses, I should say. Uh, we have one campus at, uh, in San Rafael, California, um, and it sits on 11 acres. And then we have another campus uh, up in Oregon. It's in uh, Boring, Oregon, just about uh, 40 minutes out of uh, Portland. And that is a bigger campus and sits on 43 acres. Believe it or not. The campus in San Rafael is where all the uh, action is and where everything takes place. We call that the headquarters in San Rafael because that's where uh, we have our breeding department, puppies are raised. We just built a brand new puppy center a a few years ago. So all the puppies are um, kept in there where it's a sterile environment uh, to keep them healthy and, and ready to go out to puppy raising homes. Uh, We have our admin building there. We have tons of, uh, Tours that take place in and out of guide dogs at the San Rafael campus. And it's just a hustle and bustle there because everything's taking place there. And uh, in Oregon, uh, it's basically a, a training facility uh, where we have a, a, a dormitory where clients come in to train. And then we have many kennels where training takes place. It's it's much quieter place for training. And uh, that sits on 11 acres surrounded by pine trees. It's a very beautiful uh, campus. A little bit of history of guide dogs before I start about the programs. Guide dogs, believe it or not, has been in existence for almost 80 years, 79 years. When I first started, I remember celebrating 50 years of guide dogs, and now we're getting closer to 100 years. It's incredible of how guide dogs has been uh, going and serving uh, visually impaired people all the way, all through the United States and up into Canada, and very proud of uh, the organization. Uh, let me talk a little bit about our class, pro- about our programs at Guide Dogs for the Blind. First of all, we have uh, client programs. Uh, first, first, we have the in-residence program, which is a, a two-week program. And we know that, uh, first of all, you have an option of how you want to travel as a visually impaired person. You can travel with a cane or you have the option uh, to travel with a guide dog. And we know that choosing to live the guide dog lifestyle is a big decision. So finding the right partner to help you along the way is critical. And here at Guide Dogs, we're committed to the success of our students before, during, and long after the time they spend with us in class. And just to let everybody know again that all all our services at Guide Dogs is at no cost. This includes uh, your guide transportation to and from our campus, uh, either in California or in Oregon. It includes the instruction and and much more. Our classes uh, at both campuses are two weeks long, minimizing disruption to your personal and professional commitments. And what I mean there is when I started 30 years ago, we used to have a four-week-long program for first-time clients. And a lot of people had a nowadays would have a hard time getting away from their lives for four years. I mean, for four, for four weeks, excuse me, for four weeks. And, uh, and the two-week program works out 
very well for people for busy people, people that have to get back home, people that have jobs, have families, and we f- find out that our two week program is is suits most people's uh, lives very well. The reason why our program uh, was uh, four weeks uh, many many years ago is we used to ha- serve many clients per month, and we would have a ratio of four clients per one instructor. And now with our new program for two weeks, we have a ratio of two clients per one instructor. So we're able to cut that program in half and still provide a ton of information, great training for each of our clients before they go home with their dogs and work them independently. Um, Another um, big reason we are able to uh, cut the program in half from four weeks to two weeks is the way we evolved using positive reinforcement in our training program with our guide dogs. Again, 30 years ago when I started, our training program was very traditional. It was praise, uh, touch, praising with your voice, and then corrections when the dog did things wrong. Now, as we evolved, our training program is very much positive. And we're able to uh, see that positive uh, results in our dogs, the motivation that they show, uh, the, quick, the quick learning curve that they show in the program. We're able to take our training program with our dogs and cut that from five months to two and a half to three months of training because of the uh, techniques that we now have with the positive uh, results and the positive training. We use clicker training and food reward which really uh, shows good results in our training program. As we know, uh, some schools throughout the United States still use traditional training uh, programs, but, and they do very well. But the difference that I found out over the years is the, the motivation and the enthusiasm in our dogs. The way the dogs work uh, versus 30 years ago to the way they work now with the positive techniques is just such a big difference in the bonding between the dog and, and the handler happens in, in days more than months because of the positive techniques that we are now using in our program. So our training program and our class training programs uh, have, have gotten much easier. Uh, the dogs bond much quicker and the uh, information and training is much faster. So people are able to, uh, to really learn in a quick period of time, go home and be very successful in their home areas. So the two programs that we offer at Guide Dogs for the Blind is an in-residence program, which is two weeks where people come and fly in throughout the United States and Canada, and they spend two weeks in a basically a hotel-like setting where they got single rooms, there's a TV, a refrigerator, a microwave, uh, everything that you could ask for in a hotel room we have at Guide Dogs for the Blind. A lot of people call it club guide dogs because it's, it's a way to get away from their home and their, the, the distractions of their home and come to guide dogs and really focus on working their guide dog and learning how to work with the guide dog. And it was really appropriate that Amy gave her talk just before I came on about O&M skills, because it's really important that you have really good O&M skills to be a good guide dog traveler. So that was a nice segue to my presentation. So you learn a lot in that two weeks when you come in and get your guide dog in residence. You learn how to 
uh, manage your dog. You learn how to uh, work your dog effectively, build the relationship with your dog. You learn how to communicate your dog with your dog through uh, through guide work. Um, how to how to do turns with your dog. How to manage your dog if it passes other dogs in, in, in the work. And you learn how to uh, balance your reinforcement to tell them they're doing the right thing, and then to tell them they're doing doing uh, inappropriate things. Also, you learn that within the two weeks that you're there in the program. The the good thing about coming into an in residence is you can leave all your distractions behind. You don't have to worry about uh, what you're going to eat, when you're going to eat, because all that is provided in the in the class training programs. We have amazing chefs. Um, in our programs that that feed you very well, so you stay very energized while you're working your dogs, and um, provide you with all the uh, fixings in your room. And we don't uh, d- depend on you to clean your room because we have great staff that do that for you. So all you have to worry about is caring for your dog, focusing on your dog's work, and developing that working relationship before you go home. Another program that we have is an in-home training program. The in-home training program is provided for people that can't get away from their homes um, due to some, some kind of hardship. They may be a caregiver for the, uh, an elderly family member, or they have young children and single parent and can't get away. And uh, that, at that time, we will pr- provide them with the in-home training method that best suits them for their situation. The difference between in, in residence and in home is that we actually bring the dog to your home and you learn how to work your dog while you're going on all the normal routes that you're familiar with in your home. And right away, you can start uh, adjusting your dog to your house, where it's going to live, where it's going to sleep, and, and do all the routes that you normally did with your cane. And now you're working those routes with your guide dog. So the beauty behind in-home training is you're, you're learning about your dog, you're training with your dog, but you're becoming familiar with all the routes you're going to do into the future. And within residence, you got to go home and teach your dog all these routes uh, uh, before your dog is going to understand um, the routes itself. Um, so uh, again, uh, O&M is very important there because you'll be walking your dog through these routes by using the cane the first time they go through your new routes in their home. So again, we provide in-residence training and in-home training. And the difference between the two is you're training in home or you're training in a residence setting for those two weeks. They're both two weeks and they're both uh, very effective. In home, you're one-on-one with your instructor and yourself. And when you come into the class program, it's a two-to-one ratio where there's two clients and one instructor. Uh, so that's a, that's the difference there. Right now, because of COVID um, and, and the shutdown and the social distancing and everything that is happening because of the pandemic, we are down to a one-to-one ratio, trying to keep everybody safe, social distancing, things like that. So we have been now serving clients in class on a one-to-one ratio with only three or four clients every two weeks instead of the six to eight clients that we normally do in the class program. And in Oregon, they went from six clients to three clients with the one-to-one ratio. So that's where we're at right now at Guide Dogs. But we are, we are quickly 
building it back up to six to six uh, clients coming in, six to eight in, in California, and up to six clients in Oregon. And the way we're doing that is by uh, being tested before you come in or being vaccinated. The programs that, that are going on right now is uh, people that live close to the California campus are being served quicker than people that are living far away because of the pandemic, not allowing people to fly and, and come in because of, uh, because of the pandemic. So once you are vaccinated, uh, you, you have the ability to fly in and, and go through the class program. We have been doing much more in-home training uh, since the pandemic. Myself as a field service manager has been doing one in-home training every month. And we also have seven other field managers throughout the United States. We have Eastern field managers, uh, Midwest, Northern, Southwest, Southeast, all spread all throughout the United States. And they're also doing one in-home training a month. So we've been uh, beefing up our our training by doing much more in-home training since the pandemic because of how many people have been waiting to get guide dogs. So we're very proud of that, getting getting more clients served as the pandemic starts to, uh, people start to get the vaccinations and we can serve more people. So that is uh, our class training program and our in-home training program. The next program I want to discuss is our OMI program. Again, uh, Amy talked about how how, uh, important um, orientation mobility skills are to uh, travel around. And I would uh, definitely agree with that. And if you uh, are looking to get a guide dog, having good O&M skills are very important to travel with a guide dog. And one thing that I'm very proud of of our organization is how we developed a new program called Orientation and Mobility Immersion Program to immerse, to learn skills and immerse those skills into the guide dog lifestyle. Um, so we have uh, a couple of staff that run that program and, uh, and do a very, very good job teaching people O&M skills. It's a week-long program where people will come either into our residence hall or do uh, their training in the uh, community, one or the other. And we've even started to provide in-home training for people uh, to teach them o- orientation and mobility skills. The program is one week long. It starts on a Sunday and ends on a Saturday. They f- any people can fly in throughout the United States to our to our campus, either on either in California or Oregon. It, we run the program out of the two campuses, and we go over um, the orientation and mobility skills that's going to help them become a good guide dog traveler, such as lining up at intersections, listening for their traffic, learning um, how to problem solve. Uh, if they get offline, and uh, a lot of good skills that will help them in the future get their guide dog. One of the cool things about the OMI program, it's not just for new clients coming in to get a guide dog, but it's also for retrains that have had guide dogs for many years. Our uh, program that uh, is, is in process is for people that may have had guide dogs that had um, some usable vision when they first got their guide dogs and then lost 
more vision as they uh, went went on with their guide dogs throughout the years. And then coming in to get a new guide dog might find out that now they have lost confidence in their skills because of their loss of vision. And what the OMI program does, it helps them develop new skills that they that they lo- that they never really had because they were relying on their vision so much with their other guide dogs. So they are taught skills that uh, that they may have lost, that they forgot, or that they uh, needed to develop further to help them with their new guide dog and to develop and to develop their new confidence by having less vision. So the OMI program has been a wonderful thing for people that may have not qualified in the past to get a guide dog because of or orientation and mobility skills, or also for people that that were trying to get a you know a guide dog and were going through the guide dog program and weren't successful halfway through the program because their orientation and mobility skills were weren't uh, strong enough to direct their dogs during the program. So having this program, we have found out that we have. Um, lessened that and now more people are becoming more successful through our program and we are able to um, accept people that wouldn't be accepted in the past because of our OMI program. So we're very proud of this new program that we have at Guide Dogs. All right, the next program that I want to talk about is our is our youth programs. Um, let me go here. Let's see. So our youth programs that we have at Guide Dogs for the Blind, the first one I want to talk about that I'm really excited about is we've had it for for several years now, and it's called the Canine Buddy Program. And this program is is, uh, for young children, children of uh, could be six years and above and young adults that um, that are looked that, that are blind or visually impaired and, uh, a guy, and a dog, not a guide dog, but a buddy dog, which isn't a guide dog. It's just a dog that, may, that did not make it as a guide, but is very manageable and, uh, and a really nice type dog that would enhance a young child's life, teaching them how to live with a dog, how to care for a dog, how to be with a with the dog and walk with the dog. And sometimes it, it really builds the self-esteem of these children that are visually impaired. And it helps them prepare in the future if they ever decided that a guide dog is the lifestyle for them. So that's what the buddy dog program is all about. And we are serving our, our youth from all over of the Western United States. Um, another a youth program that we have is called Ready, Set, Forward. And this is a, another program that is developed for our younger younger kids uh, to get them ready if they want to get a guide dog in the future. Um, they'll come in. And, uh, right now, we're doing it virtually, these workshops where people are uh, coming online, uh, Zoom uh, kind of meetings and uh, teaching them what a guide dog is, what our program's about and uh, how to apply. And so we're very excited about that program also. We also have Camp Guide Dogs. It's an annual summer camp for youth and young adults, um, 14 and over, to learn more about uh, the guide dog lifestyle. It's a camp where all kids get together, and it, it, it's really neat. 
Um, one other thing we have is called a lifestyle workshop where you come and you get hands-on experience with uh, working Juno, uh, which is an imaginary dog and learning how to communicate and uh uh, everything that you need to know about a guide dog, how to work them, how to turn, make a left turn with them, a right turn with them, how to manage them. Um, and also you get an opportunity to work with an actual guide dog to see how it feels and to see if that is the right choice for you for uh, your upcoming lifestyle is to, is to travel with a guide dog. So those are our programs. Um, hopefully if you have any more questions about our programs, we have a wonderful, uh, website guidedogs.com will answer all your questions. I'm sure uh, you can maneuver around that. It's very accessible. It talks about how to apply at our organization. If you're looking to apply for a guide dog, it's easy step-by-step. Step. You can fill out your application online. And then you can, uh, after your application is uh, done and accepted, it will, uh, an admissions person will call you. After that, you will get a home interview. And then um, once the home interview is done, the admissions will call and set up a, a schedule of when uh, we can schedule your class date to come in and get a guide dog. So it's a really easy process uh, to apply if, you, if, if that is what your choice would be. Let me talk about, so after, you get a uh, go through the training program and you're done. One thing about coming into Guide Dogs for the Blind and getting a dog, you become part of Guide Dog family once you get a, a Guide Dog. We, we are going to keep you in that family. You're part of the alumni, which many of the people in, in uh, Hawaii already know. You're, you are part of this wonderful Guide Dog family. And how, what is it? What is life after graduation? Are you left out there all alone? Not when you get a guide dog from Guide Dogs for the Blind. We're here to support you through the life of your dog and, and much longer after, even in retirement and then coming in to get your successor dog. So my job, again, as, as working in client services, being a field service manager is there to support our graduates for the life of their dog and, and continue to give that support to them uh, all the way to the end and into, and into the dog's retirement. And uh, we also have what's called the support center. And this is a, uh, a, a phone, phone line support center, a phone, a phone support center that you can call in Monday through Friday, 8 to 4, and ask any question you may have uh, to support for support, for access issues, whatever it may be. They're waiting for you for calls uh, to answer all your questions and to provide any support they can over the phone. If, if they can't provide the support over the phone, they will call the field manager as myself and we will come out and do a direct visit if that's needed for any safety issues and behavior issues in the field. Um, so we're there to support you from the beginning to the end and, uh, and throughout uh, all the dogs that you may get at our program. One really great program that I want to mention is the VFA program, Veterinarians Financial Assistance Program. We I, don't. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just want to let you know you have five minutes. Thank you. I'm always finished. Appreciate I, it. No uh, problem. We uh, the VFA program is a financial fi is a veterinarian financial assistance program. We never want to make it a barrier for anybody coming in to get a guide dog from our program, and we provide. Uh, financial assistance if you cannot afford it. 
Everybody gets $250 a year for uh, annual physicals, flea and tick preventive, heart guard. But if but we all know that life happens. And if your your Labrador ends up eating something you don't want to, and you have to rush your dog to the clinic and uh, guy, and you can't afford it, don't worry. Guide Dogs is there to assist with any financial needs. And I'm very, very proud of this program. So anybody can get a guide dog, even if you feel you cannot afford it. We're there to financially assist any medical needs. As we know, veterinary um, bills can be very high and Guide Dogs is there to support you. Um, one other thing that we are doing now is I know you guys heard about Be My Eyes. Uh, guide Dogs have partnered with uh, Will Butler and Be My Eyes. And we, ha- if you download that app, there is now a tab on there that goes directly to one of our support center staffs. And they're able to help you in any way they can with your guide dogs. Uh, if you're having any issues, if you need to find things, uh, it's, it's a virtual uh, video when you call and we're in and we'll be there to assist you in any way you need to. So I think that's pretty cool that that is happening now. Um, I uh, think I am almost done. I kind of cruised through that last part. But uh, again, uh, if you have any more questions from me in the future, um, you can reach me at tjurek at guidedogs.com. Vicki Kennedy has my information, so you can reach out to her too if you have any questions for me. But again, our website at Guide Dogs for the Blind is very accessible. Um, it, it will tell you everything you need to know about our program, what's available, how to apply to our program. We know there's two ways to, uh, to travel, either with a cane or with a guide dog. And, uh, and you have that choice out there. So I'm hoping uh, that I see more people in Hawaii applying for guide dogs. I'm looking forward to uh, working with everybody that gets a guide dog in Hawaii from our school. And I'm very excited to support you from the beginning to the end. So I really want to thank you guys for having me on. I hope I uh, went over everything about our program. But again, I'm available to uh, if you want to reach out to me. Wonderful. Thank you, Todd. We are right on time. That's great. So uh, let me squeeze in one door prize and then we'll move on to our next uh, speaker. So let's see. Okay, so next we have another gift card. It's a $25 Starbucks gift card that was donated by Cynthia Hirakawa. Thank you, Cynthia. And this lovely gift card is going to Marisol Cameron. Congratulations, Marisol. So uh, we'll be sending that to you, Starbucks. Uh, All right. So let me pull up my list here. So our next speaker is someone I I know. He's giving me rides. (laughs) So... um, uh, and he's also been very, 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 very instrumental. Of course, one of the many people that helped put this together, this whole convention. So uh, let me let me uh, introduce him. Uh, let's see. Let me let me say his uh, his wonderful titles here. So okay. So our next guest is a our next speaker is a member of the National Legislative Committee of the Assistance Dogs International and. He's also the former executive director of Hawaii Fido uh, Service Dogs. So our next speaker is Jim Kennedy. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Todd's a hard, hard act to follow, and after Amy, too. Uh, I can say this. I want to say this about uh, guide dogs and Todd. 
field service managers play a real important role in supporting those who've uh, decided that uh, in their lifestyle, there's room for and need for a, a well-trained uh, service dog. And as well-trained as they are, sometimes we do have problems. We haven't really had any problems with Buddy, but we did uh, with uh, the previous two dogs, just little problems. And they actually flew uh, service managers out here to work with us if it couldn't be worked on the phone. So the level of service support they give is just awesome. Uh, Todd mentioned the uh, medical uh, assistance. Uh, Vicky's last guide dog, Angela, had two ACL tears, one on the right and one on the left. And I'll just tell you that between them, it was almost $15,000, and we were shocked. And guide dog said, it's taken care of. So God bless guide dogs for the blind. And good field managers like Todd with handling their challenges with strong-minded graduates like my wife. <laughs> anyway, I'm Jim, and uh, I'm known otherwise as Vicky's driver. Uh, I'm a cheerleader. Uh, but I've actually had quite a bit of experience with uh, service dogs. Uh, Vicky's had uh, three guides in the last 21 years. She started in the year 2000 when she first became totally blind. And those three dogs, as any guide dog does for its partner, they really changed their lives. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit here about guide dogs and I'm going to compare it to service uh, to uh, emotional support dogs. A lot of people say, oh, I know the difference. But most people really don't know the difference. And now that we've had some uh, major change in the U.S. Department of Transportation rules, uh, it's really critical to understand the difference, uh, not only for yourself, but um, it, with others that you, family members and others you talk to about service animals in general. As I said, I've I had 21 years of experience with loving, caring uh, guide dogs. When Vicky got her first one, uh, the field service fellow says, you know, I think Jim's word is going to be replaced. <laughs> and, and in a way, I was, <laughs> but uh, in a very helpful way. And Vicky, when she graduated, said, don't worry, Jim, you're getting the best doggone help you could possibly have, pun intended. Um, so, now, those 21 years taught me a lot in observation and also assisting. Um, but uh, in the last, well, several years, I was the, I was, had the privilege and honor to be the executive director of Hawaii FIDO Service Dogs. That's FIDO, not five O. Uh, whenever we would make contacts with potential donors or uh, communication services organizations, I get real excited thinking I'm calling from Hawaii FIDO. It's Hawaii FIDO, not five O. Um, I was executive director, and I didn't have any responsibilities for training them. It was more uh, raising uh, aware, public awareness, outreach, uh, some fundraising so we could do our operations as lean as it was. Uh, and I, I really gained even more appreciation for what service dog organizations go through in just making available whatever they need to do to make available a really well-trained service dog. Wi-Fido, by the way, uh, provided dogs for people with disabilities other than vision impairment. But it still doesn't uh, diminish uh, the wonderful things that they can do and other service dogs can do, like uh, medical alert dogs, uh, hearing dogs, brace dogs, that kind of uh, service dog. They're all real important 
But Wi-Fi, though, gave me uh, an opportunity to, to really understand organizationally how important it is to have a well-run training program. And the other background thing I have, as mentioned before, I, I have been and still am. Uh, I retired, by the way, from Hawaii Fido just this past summer. Uh, but uh, I've been a member of Assistance Dogs International, which is pretty much like the uh, international accreditation organization uh, for service dogs, certainly in North America, but in other parts of the, of the world. They look to them for guidance in terms of best practices and regulation issues. Uh, it, and I've been a member of its uh, National Legislative and uh, Advocacy Committee. And uh, in the last year and a half, uh, our committee of nine people played a major role in helping provide information to the U.S. Department of, of Transportation about the new regs regarding uh, service animals, in particular, uh, nicknamed uh, emotional support animals and uh, their traveling on air carriers. A um, couple uh, things now, I'm gonna jump into uh, the differences. Um, I don't have a benefit of a monitor with great screen running notes, but uh, I've got some here and I've some key bullet points. Um, it's really important to understand the real difference between a service dog and a uh, emotional support dog. The bottom line is that um, the Americans with Disabilities Act covers service dogs. It does not address in any way or provide any uh, rights and access to uh, emotional support dogs. It, a uh, legitimate service dog must be trained to provide a meaningful assistance to someone who is, uh, has a documented disability. And um, that uh, documentation, ADA says, uh, is actually between the person and, uh, the, and, the, and the provider of the dog. Although ADA specifically does allow for an individual with disabilities to actually train a dog on their own. They do not have to get a dog from a legitimate, from a, a, an organized uh, service dog training facility. Um, the, the emotional support dogs that all of us have seen when we're flying from point A to B, uh, the, the growth in those numbers is in the hundreds of percents in the last five and six years. In large part, that's because the, uh, you could go online and if you want to be sure to take your Fifi with you on the plane and have uh, it, uh, he or she beside you, uh, you can go online and uh, say, you know, this is a most support dog. Uh, I need it for uh, being able to fly comfortably without uh, huge anxieties. And they get a, a letter. You know, all you have to do is fill out a few questions online, and they'll get a letter issued by a uh, medical professional. And for seventy nine ninety five, you can get all the paraphernalia, you know, the jackets, the, the lanyards, the tags, the leases, and you'll get them an extra twenty bucks. You'll get it in ten days or three days. Uh, that that availability really was what started to bring down uh, the abuse. It's ironic because there was such a growth in uh, seeing emotional support dogs on aircraft that everyone said, time out, 
that is it. We've had it. And so the U.S. Department of Transportation said, uh, we, we have to look at this. And the airlines are going nuts. And all of you, any of you who have service dogs, have seen, um, you know, that abuse as well. And those of you who don't have service dogs but travel also do see that, that abuse. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that, um, that abuse in a second. We, got, we have um, the ADA law, as I mentioned, already allows you to train the, the service dog yourself. They do not require, I don't think I said this, but they do not require that the service dog have uh, a vest identifying it as a service dog. They do not require it have an ID. And the main reason was um, they wanted to be able to let an individual train a dog, him or herself, to become their service dog. Now, I found it very hard to believe how that, how can that happen? How can somebody do that? But I'm going to give you a real good example of, of how it was done and how this law um, allowance was really very appropriate. A few years back, uh, when Dickey was president of the Northern Foundation, Foundation Fighting Blindness in Northern California, uh, they had a, an art exhibit where it, people with vis vision impairments had photography that they made, sculptures, paintings, and what have you. And they had an open house. And there was a fellow there who had one of those Australian herders, you know, you know, silver and black, the Australian shepherd, I guess you would call it. And this dog was pretty well behaved uh, when in, in his harness, but um, it was stealing little finger sandwiches like a frog snapping flies. I can't tell you how funny it was to see it, but also – uh, it also was disturbing. You know, Vicky and I were always keeping our eyes open in the late 1900s about where would we, you know, 1990s, where, where might we go to get a, a, a service dog? And when we saw one acting really well or really badly, we'd always say, gee, where did you get your dog? Why do you want to know? Well, you know, we're going to be getting one in a few years. And, and, and so anyway, this, I asked this fellow, where did you get your dog? And he said, what do you want to go for? And I, I'd obviously struck a nerve. And I told him, you know, we want to know where we see dogs, you know, where they came from. I didn't tell him because I thought the dog was acting badly. But anyway, um, he said, well, I'll tell you the truth. He said, I trained him myself. And I thought, no stuff. I wasn't a bit surprised. But he had a real interesting story. This individual had uh, modest financial means, was living in a, like a, 280-square-foot uh, studio apartment in San Francisco. And this dog was his pet. He was able to have that as a pet. And he had a, a, a traumatic blunt force accident, and he went blind just like that, legally blind like that. And I guess it was closer to 90 95%. He knew he could get a guide dog, but there's no way he was going to give up this pet he's had for four years. Um, and he couldn't bring in a second dog in a 280-square-foot uh, studio apartment. So he went online, he bought a harness, and he knew somebody was an AKC dog trainer. And although that AKC trainer was not uh, a uh, service dog trainer, he worked with this fellow, and uh, just through sheer guts and will, they got that dog to behave properly at, at intersections and mostly around people. 
but they didn't teach it behavior in a uh, social environment like stealing sandwiches like a frog snapping flies. So anyway, I mentioned that because the ADA really, over 20 years old, was very foresightful to the need to allow somebody to take their pet and convert it to a, a service dog. But it has to be trained to perform a specific service, a meaningful service or services for that person with the disabilities. And the person has to have a documentable dis- disability. Um, and by uh, uh, usually it's by a physician. It could be another healthcare pre- professional. It could be a mental health professional. Um, but, uh, but it's not Uncle John who has his PhD uh, in physics. That kind of doctor is not going to document it. The ADA specifically says that a dog that is a service dog is allowed access anywhere an individual who is out and about might otherwise be entitled to go into without that disability. So basically, they can go anywhere you or I without disabilities can go. Um, and that there is an exception. Uh, uh, one interesting real exception is that uh, houses of worship are allowed to have policies that aren't required to allow them access. Fortunately, they have embraced their their flock and, and their uh, parishioners' uh, need to have service dogs, and that hasn't really been a, a problem. But for all intent and purposes, if you have a service dog, that can go anywhere you want to go, and that can mean not only on airplane, aircraft, but uh, businesses, restaurants, uh, stores, transportation such as buses and trains and cabs. Emotional support dogs have none of that access. They did have access uh, on air carriers until this year's new uh, Department of Transportation rules and regs. One other thing, though, about access, uh, we do recommend and it is recommended that the dogs, the, the service dog, and it has to be a dog, uh, not go to uh, the uh, really wild animal section of the zoo. And there's a real reason for that. And that is that uh, the eye contact with these uh, wild animals, lions and tigers and gorillas, uh, can actually stir up uh, quite a bit of upset and disturbance at the zoo facility. So it's really, it's really important to not push your luck on taking them there when you're in the zoo. Uh, now, if you're out and about with a service dog, uh, businesses, you know, sometimes are, gee, I, you know, I'm not sure if this is a real legitimate service dog. And that here in Hawaii was a huge problem until two years ago. And I'll talk about that. Um, and that's because there's been so much confusion with all the abuse with fake service dog vests, and harnesses and IDs. And so they're not really sure sometimes. Now, when you see someone like uh, an individual with vision impairment with a hard handle and the dog is you know, focused and right beside the rarely any question at all about that. But some, you know, some are not so obvious. For instance, if you're hearing impaired or if you have a medical alert dog or you, you need assistance bracing, getting into or out of a chair, out of your car, uh, that's not so obvious. And so the businesses sometimes are, you know, what, what do I do? How do I, what do I say? And they're allowed to ask two questions, and only two questions. One is, is this a service animal required because of a disability? That's the exact question. Maybe a word or two off, but that's it. 
You can't say, are you disabled? And that's kind of interesting to me because to say, is this a service animal required because of a disability? You effectively are being given permission to ask, are you, do you have a disability? The other question you can ask is, what specific tasks has this service dog been trained to perform? Uh, you're allowed to ask those questions, but no more. You can't say, what's your disability? You can't say, I want to see an ID. Uh, do you have ID on this? Do you have training papers on this? Um, I want to see an example. I want a demonstration. You cannot ask any of those things. Uh, so you can ask those two questions. And, and sometimes that does not really give you, give the businesses a, a real good idea of whether or not it's a service dog. So when we're asked, well, how the heck do you tell, can you tell if you can't ask these other questions? And the answer is really pretty simple. It's basically by their behavior. Uh, not only their behavior, but their appearance. Are they well-groomed? Are they cleaned? Are they right beside their, their partner? Are they on a leash? Certainly they're not in grocery carts. They're not in Gucci purses. And they're not in baby strollers. Now, I have to say there are a couple of exceptions to that, and these are pretty important. If uh, a, do a small dog has been trained to be a, um, a medical alert dog, they often, if I mean small, really Fifi-type small, they are often carried in uh, like a chest pack, almost like a reverse papoose, uh, so that that dog might pick up this, the uh, pheromones or the, the odor that allows it to alert its partner, hey, you better sit down in the corner and you're about ready to have a seizure or you better check your blood sugar. Uh, normally, they still are large four-on-the-floor dogs, uh, typically Labradors, Goldens, uh, Labradoodles, but they can be other breeds. So one exception is, is that you could have a non-four-on-the-floor Fifi at a breast pack to help with uh, medical alerting. Another example, and I did not ever witness this until a couple of years ago, but it's real important to point out. If the dog's performance could be inhibited in any way by having a leash attached to it, that and the dog can still be under full command of its partner, that dog is allowed to be operate off leash. And the only time I ever witnessed that was something when I questioned an individual as, as an individual, not as Fido's executive director. He had a, the best, well-behaved, as well-behaved dog I've ever seen, but it was totally off leash. And uh, turns out he had PTSD. He'd been a chopper pilot, shot down in Vietnam. Uh, everywhere he went in crowds, he was afraid that, you know, somebody, he couldn't get away from the fear that someone bad might come up behind him. And so this dog would walk forward with him, but he walked forward to him, always keeping his face forward, but he walked in front of him to his side, behind him and to his other side. And, and then when he stopped, it was just like that heel right beside him. So those are two important examples of, of differences. Um, that are that varied from the typical viewing the dog and say, oh, well, you know, uh, you have to have a leash and it has to be on the floor. Um, let's see, one other thing. Oh, on, on the matter of making a judgment call, if a business does not um, allow access, the individual, the handler, who's the legitimate service dog, has the right to pursue some legal remedies. Ideally, we recommend trying to educate rather than to uh, 
uh, beat somebody up. But if if the dog is, even if it is a legitimate service dog, but if it is not well behaved, you know, if it pees or poops, if it growls, it barks, it lunges, steals a steak or whatever, that that business is allowed with full ADA protection, full federal protection, to ask that dog team to leave. Uh, just the, so just because you're a service dog doesn't mean that you have, you know, invincible rights. Okay, let's talk about emotional support dogs. Emotional support dogs. I, I'm gonna. This is gonna sound flip. You know, I I say if the dog does for you what a really good fuzzy teddy bear does, um, that's probably an emotional support dog. Calms you down, gives you comfort, reduces anxiety. All those things are important. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying those aren't important, but though that's not a disability. That's not a disability, and the dog does not have to be trained to give you loving and, and, and uh, calm, peace of mind. So if the dog is not trained to perform assistance for an individual who it has a dis disability, then it's not a service dog. It's an emotional support dog. Now, up until recently, the emotional support dogs had two really strong, really strong federal laws that gave them some some rights. Um, uh, talk first about Fair Housing Act. Fair Housing Act uh, requires uh, landlords or condos or apartments, uh, building areas to allow an emotional support dog to live in a facility that otherwise does not allow uh, does not allow any kind of pets. Now they have to provide, be able to provide a doctor's statement or an emotional support or a emotional support or a emotional psychological professional. They have to have that, that statement saying this person really needs this, desperately needs it, and this dog Bowser is the one that gives her that emotional support. Um, and and they have to allow that individual to have that dog enter. Now, it, similarly, those kind of requirements used to be with the airlines, the Air Carrier Access Act. Until recently, they had to allow emotional support dogs in the cabin with passengers. Uh, uh, and uh, as long as that person pulled out, whipped out that paper and whipped out that uh, doctor's certificate, uh, they had to allow it. The outrage with this growth that I talked about in the last five years just hit the breaking point about two years ago. And the airlines and the uh, Department of Transportation said, we have to work something out. And, uh, and they did. Uh, I was on the uh, ADI's uh, National Legislative uh, Committee, and our nine-member team provided a great deal of uh, input into the DOT after looking at their proposals. And those, those proposals were shared with many hundreds of different organizations and concerned individuals. It wasn't just our ADI committee that strongly influenced them. Though we, we think we had some meaningful impact. There were some, I call it, I don't, almost draconian requirements that were going to be made. And we were really concerned about it and, and kind of dug our heels on some stuff. And, um, 
in, in the end, there had to be a compromise, not necessarily between DOT and ADI, but DOT and the rest of the world. And they basically came up with um, three things that everyone really needs to know. One is emotional support dogs, airlines do now not have to allow them in the cabin. They do not have to allow them in the cabin. Papers or not, it doesn't make any difference. Now, that doesn't mean that the airlines can't make a business decision to ultimately allow them in for a fee or what have you, but they're now not going to be required. And by now, I mean like January 2nd or 3rd, I think it was, of this year, it went into effect. They're not going to be required to have um, uh, to allow emotional support dogs in the cabin. Now, they also put forth, though, and these were the kind of controversial, more than kind of controversial, Things. They require two new forms, one new form for sure, and a second one if you're doing a long flight. The first form certifies as to this dog is a, a legitimate service dog. It has been well trained to perform the following function. And, um, and you have to certify, it's self-certified. Now, the other one is if you can fly over eight, uh, eight hours, rather, there is another form you have to self-certify, and that is that my dog can hold it. <laughs> uh, it's only the most polite way to say it. And if the dog doesn't, you have to be prepared to deal with the consequences. Well, that means you've got wee-wee pads, uh, Kleenex, uh, paper towels or whatever. And, and even if there is some damage as a result of it, you can be held liable for it, whereas before you were not. Um, so uh, the the... I'm sorry, the Air Carrier Access Act basically gave the, took away the, the stress of all the emotional support animals that were jamming the system in the airport. And, uh, and, but on the other hand, while it freed up more room for and more friendly accommodated legitimate service dogs, it also put the clamp down on these self-certifications. Now, some people, we said, you know, what good is self-certification? And uh, the problem, again, comes back to the ADA saying you can't require papers uh, from a training organization. They don't have any central uh, registration repository uh, to validate this dog's a service dog and this one's not. Uh, so they, they basically said, if we make it federal law, we think it will have a meaningful impact and we'll see a serious reduction in this abuse. One, one other thing I want to talk about, and that is uh, the Hawaii, state of Hawaii's fake service dog law. One of the things that I had the most, I felt most gratified with my, in my role as an executive director of Hawaii Fido Service Dogs is we and, and I and, and, and Vicki too spent a lot of time in helping educate Hawaii state legislators, senators and representatives uh, in 2018. And we promised an educational campaign to help alert individuals on the serious problem of these fake service dogs. Again, they get their vests and badges real fast on the internet. And um, uh, in testifying before one of the judiciary committees, uh, I, I addressed the elephant in the room that nobody was talking about. This how in the heck do you enforce this? Okay, that is a big issue across the country. However, there are at least 14 or 15 states that went ahead and agreed like our legislator did, and that is step, 
you know what? It's a stake in the ground. It's the beginning of helping inform and educate the public that this is so wrong. And on January 1, 2019, fake service dog went into effect. I told them not to expect to collect a lot of, of, a lot of fines because of the enforceability issue. Now, maybe it's just wishful thinking on my part, but Vicki and I have uh, seen what we would call a noticeable reduction in the number of, of dogs that have service dog vests on them that are obviously not service dogs. Well, anyway, that's, that's uh, the differences between the two, the importance of the difference between the two, and um, I hope that helps a little bit. If you have any uh, need for additional information, all of you have Vicki's email, but mine is Jim Kennedy. 513, that's my birthday, May 13th. Jim Kennedy, I'm going to be an older foot in just a few days. Jim Kennedy at gmail.com. And I'll be more than happy to talk to you uh, about whatever questions or issues you may have. Thank you uh, very, very much for giving me a chance to share these thoughts. Aloha. Wonderful. Thank you, Jim. Um, so yeah, with all this talk of dogs, I was thinking I should, I should have used one of these Zoom filters where I would be a dog. So. <laughs> But uh, unfortunately, I didn't think of that in advance. So anyway, <laughs> we're moving on with the program. Um, so we're right on time. And uh, we are going to be well, we're going to be talking about a uh, handy van. Uh, of course, something important to uh, many of us, it helps us get around. And uh, our next speaker is going to be uh, Vice President of Paratransit, Michael Randolph. Mahalo, mahalo. Thank you, thank you for inviting me to participate in this uh, amazing event. I hear you are at 54 years old and growing, so that's fantastic. What I'd like to do is give you an overview of HandyVan, and I can also say that I'm very excited to be a part of HandyVan's upcoming 25th anniversary year in 2022. Hopefully we can celebrate properly post-COVID style, as they say. So HandyVan is committed to safe, reliable, and timely service for all riders. We pride ourselves on the Aloha spirit, and it shows with our drivers, our staff, our management every day. I don't have much time, so I'd like to give you a brief overview, an update on what we're doing here, and allow some time for Q&A. So we just recently revised our Handy Van Riders Guide in March of 2021. So I'd like to spend some time talking about that. But first, before I even get started, I wanna remind everyone that you do have the option to request the Riders Guide in audio, enhanced print, and Word document by calling this number I'm about to give. So I'll give you a chance to get ready. The phone number is 808-768-8300. Once again, that's 808-768-8300. So the first thing, as everyone probably knows, is that our hours of operation in most areas, Monday through Sundays, from about 4 a.m. through 1 a.m., 24 hours a day in areas located within three-fourths of a mile of the bus routes number two and 40. 
Our fare continues to be $2. And any changes, of course, you will know since we're in uh, some deep discussions right now with the uh, city. There again is no charge for your personal care attendant or PCA or your service animal when accompanying a handy van cartel. Once again, be prepared to pay the exact fare. Our operators do not carry change and are not allowed to search personal items for customer fares. You still will be able to use our fare tickets instead of cash. Even when we come out with the holo card, as you're probably hearing a lot about that, you will still be able to use cash and coupons. You can still purchase your uh, coupons the same way through the bus pass office. Or you can call 808-848-5555 and press number four for more information. That's 808-848-5555. So making a reservation, you wanna make sure that you also call 808-456-5555. For voice, press number one, and you would be able to get to a reservationist between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. daily. You may make your reservation from one to three days before the date of your trip. And I wanna add something to you. Uh, Some folks are calling and they're finding that their phone call might get transferred during during busy times to uh, from reservations lines to our cancellation line representatives, that is not an error. That is something that we have done to try to assist our reservationists work closer with uh, some assistance through our cancellation line representatives. So if you are transferred, you are not being transferred by mistake. The reservationists through the cancellation line representatives will assist you. So again, you know, you have to have your name, number, know where you want to go, your date, trip, and all that good information, and prepare yourself for your ride. So let's talk about mobility aids. The handy band can transport at a minimum all occupied mobility aids weighing up to 600 pounds and measuring 30 inches in width and 48 inches in length. Operators will secure all mobility aids inside the van. Any mobility aid that you will use on the handy van should be reviewed, measured, and weighed with the rider in it by the handy van eligibility center. That's if you're just getting started. If you need assistance, they can also assist you by calling 808-456-5555. Holidays. Regularly scheduled rides that fall on holidays are automatically canceled. Once again, you can call the 456-555 number to schedule your ride on the following days. Now, handy van card holders, please make sure you have your handy van photo identification cards at all time. Once again, it is a shared ride service, origin to destination. It is not an emergency or taxi service, and you will be assisted door to door if necessary through reasonable modification requests. Our customer service department is always there to help you and you can reach them at once again, 808-456-5555.
and pressing option number three. Option number three. Now, just to, to make sure for safety reasons, we always wanna make sure you are waiting at the sidewalk or at another safe waiting area in front of your pickup location or designated pickup location that has been arranged through reasonable modifications. Again, you will be assisted to and from your vehicle and the door of your building if necessary. Okay, you can expect the van to pick you up within 30 minutes after your scheduled pickup time. And we refer to this as your 30 minute window. So please be ready by the earliest time in your pickup window. What's exciting is you can also see your van's estimated arrival time on our online estimated van arrival, which is our EVA system. And once again, you can call customer service at the 456-5555 number and press number three. And if your van arrives early, you may volunteer to leave early, but you are not obligated to leave until your scheduled pickup time. And so you don't need to rush out the door. You don't need to do any of those things to get to your vehicle if the vehicle is early. You have a scheduled time and that is what we will honor. Operators will wait up to five minutes after the scheduled pickup time or five minutes after they arrive, if they arrive later than the scheduled pickup time and then leave. We also have initiated our IVR. I'm not sure if some of you have taken advantage of signing up to that, but you should consider it because it's a great option where you would be notified 10 minutes before your vehicle arrived that your vehicle intimate, intimate arrival and so that's also a nice little feature to have where you would get a notification that it's almost there. Now, of course, when you're riding, we want to make sure that you are safe at all times. So you must use the provided seatbelt. And we are requesting that everyone use our shoulder harness and remain seated while riding, particularly if you are using a mobility aid, such as a wheelchair or a scooter. Now, let's just talk briefly about cancellations. Again, the cancellation line Phone number is the 808-456-5555 number, but you press option number two. And please use that line as soon as you know that the trip is not needed. If you do not cancel your reservation at least two hours before the scheduled pickup time, you will be considered a no-show. And we don't want that to happen. But keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, if you are doing your reservation and you are Transferred to the cancellation line representative when you're doing your reservation. Do not hang up. You, the cancellation line representatives are there to assist you in reserving your reservation, your trip. So we want to make sure that you know that. And that is really for us and for everyone to have assistance on both sides when we get a little busy. So let's talk a little bit about the cancellation policy. Uh, if you did not meet the two-hour cancellation policy, per, um, there's the no-show, which would occur, and that is you're not at the requested pickup dress, address and the operator cannot locate you. You are at the pickup address but not ready to board the van within five minutes of the arrival of an on-time van. You have not called to cancel your trip at least two hours prior to your pickup time. Your pickup time is within a gated community requiring special entry and you fail to arrange entry for the paratransit vehicle before your pickup time. Now we will obviously work with you to 
work out any issues, especially if it's the first time or you're not aware of, of, the, of what needs to happen when, if you're moving into an area that's key. So we will work with you. Riders who have repeated no-shows may be suspended from the Handyvan service. So make sure if you're not sure, you can always call and ask how we can assist you to avoid having the no-show. Service animals. Just briefly talking about service animals, they are animals that are individually trained and as you know, perform tasks for people with disabilities. And that was a great presentation before, I'm sure, from Jim. And um, so you're very familiar with service animals. Now, pets or emotional support or comfort animals are not allowed unless they are in a cage or carrier that can be stored under the rider's seat or on the rider's lap without inconveniencing other riders. And please, as you know, if any service animal or pet, pet is out of control, the owner and the owner does not take action to control it or the animal poses a threat to the health or safety of others, the operator may refuse to transport the animal or take action to have it removed from the vehicle. So be mindful of everyone's safety. And packages. You may carry only two small packages, small pieces of luggage or bags you are able to manage by yourself. They should be light enough for you to carry and hold on your lap or small enough that they can be placed on your seat without interfering in the movement of fellow passengers during transport. Please, if you're going shopping, anticipate if you're going to be carrying more than two bags and you can always make other arrangements. And a lot of times the stores will also make arrangements and help you transport um, your items um, home. There's a lot of services available like that now. So children under four years of age or weigh under 40 pounds must travel in an approved child seat. The handyman vehicles are not equipped with child seats, so you will need to bring one with you. Service will be denied if a child does not have the approved child seat. We must remain safe at all times. Lost and found. Articles found on the handyman will be turned into the customer service office. Articles will be held for 45 days. You can always contact customer service and they will, and if they know that you're coming, they will arrange for your transport and hold it for you until you arrive. So I know everyone, when they get on the vehicle, they're, they're excited to be going where they have to go and, and going to either work or going out and uh, all prohibited acts and misconduct we have to be mindful of. So we, don't, we hope and expect no one to be consuming food or drink unless required for medical reasons playing uh, the radios and, and, and music really loud without their earphones and, you know, basically just being courteous on the bus. So in the event of any violations of the handyman rules and regulations or any other laws or rules related to the handyman, service may be suspended to a cardholder for up to 12 months at the discretion of the director of the Department of Transportation Services or the director's designee. Now, I know we don't expect anybody to be breaking the rules or causing anyone to have any problems on the vehicles because we're all riding and sharing a ride together. So checking my time here. Vicky, how am I doing? Okay. I guess I am. You're, oh. you're good. Yep. Plenty okay. of time. Okay, good. I just wanted to give you a couple of tips um, before we go into the Q&A. Um, I was kind of looking back over some things and, 
and, and some tips for individuals um, taking public transportation. They're using video magnifiers with distance view now. Um, there are apps that they have for that. I'm not sure if, if you've seen it. It's probably really a, you know ideal situation. Um, gather as much information about your trip before you go. Physical surroundings, buildings and landmarks near transit stops, walking pathways, entrances, exits, access to building. Gather as much information about your trip before you go. Mobile apps are becoming more available and there are quite a few. Um, and I'm sure that you have heard of them, but a couple that I just wanna share with you. One is called a KNFB reader and it actually translates written words into, spree into speech or braille. And this app also allows users to easily send and share documents. So that's really a nice one. And I can uh, share that um, link with uh, Vicki and she can um, share it with anybody who'd like. There's another great app that I hear about it's called Talking Tags. And this is actually designed to create labels or tags for everyday use. These are coded tags can help users select which box to fill in when moving or which jar to take out of the fridge. Uh, ideal talking tags. It's a talking label maker, reader application. And then uh, the last one is Ability. It's an app that helps people with any type of disability to successfully navigate public places and search for accessible features in any public space like stores and restaurants and parks. And it's called AbilityApp.com. That's the website, AbilityApp, one word, dot com. So um, there's just a few tips for everyone to hopefully make their travel planning uh, easier and safer. And uh, I thank you for allowing me to join you and I'm gonna open it up to questions. Uh, can you give the name of the app for identifying, you said something about tags? Yes, it's called Talking Tags. Okay. Thank you. Um, what What are some of the, how have you guys uh, adapted during this past year with the pandemic? What are some of the changes and um, have there been any updates uh, in, in the past, I don't know, few weeks and months? Well, as you, I'm sure, well aware, we're all listening intently to uh, CDC recommendations and we're also uh, basing our service delivery based on recommendations and on what we believe is the best practices for us in regards to handling our service demand. So we have obviously incorporated enhanced cleaning into our fleets. We've incorporated masks and uh, spatial uh, capacity limits inside our vehicles. Uh, our drivers have uh, cleaning kits, disinfecting kits, and, and spray on their vehicles where they can wipe down touch points. And we consistently, on a regular basis, if not multiple times throughout the day, the vehicles are cleaned or wiped down, obviously, before each driver would get on. And once a day, it's a thorough cleaning before the vehicle returns to service the next day. Um, we're continuing to um, maintain our capacity limits but we are starting to uh, relax some of those limits but it will really be dependent upon service demand and uh, so far everyone all riders everyone has been exceptional in working with us in regards to our shared ride platform and um, 
we have really um, been quite successful in transporting our customers. We've done an average of about 2,200 uh, trips a day, and um, which is almost about, we're about 75% of where we were pre-COVID. And uh, those numbers are continuing to rise um, every day as everyone starts to get vaccinated and, of course, feel more comfortable in coming out. Now, I, I have a question. Okay. So, you know, a lot of our members uh, will travel um, to eventually we're going to start traveling again to the mainland, to national conventions and such. And, of course, you know, ACB holds its uh, national conventions uh, every year in a different place, different state. Uh, can you touch upon maybe a little bit what somebody from Hawaii who might be traveling to, say, Chicago or Ohio or Columbus or anywhere, uh, what they might want to do in terms of having paratransit access when, once they get to their destination? Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm not sure if you are familiar, but every, every, every agency – uh, or state that you go to with their public transit agency or their ADA services, they have a, um, we have a, um, I can't think of the right word, but a share, um, not share, but it is a um, complimentary um, cooperative service where you would contact that particular state public agency, public transit agency, let that find contact what that um, ADA service is. Well, as you know, we're handy van, other companies call Access, Access Link, or Mobility. You contact those particular agency and let them know you're coming into the area, and then they will give you a complimentary service. I believe it's going to be up to 30 days, and that's the ADA uh, regulation and requirement to do that. So you would just let them know, and, and they would give you the details on their service and what you would have to do to be able to ride their service. Hi, I, thank you. Um, just to follow up to Art's question. So um, with that said, if somebody's going to the airport and has a, a luggage bag and cannot put that under their seat, are you, do you allow that at all? Or yes, do you have to make will. special arrangements? Uh, no, we will transport with luggage because we do recognize you are going to the airport. But okay. let the reservation is know that that's where you're going. And so they can make sure that the driver is prepared uh, to be transporting luggage. Thank you. So um, it, you said uh, earlier that you were back up to about 75% of uh, capacity, what we were before pandemic. Um, so I assume, obviously, for obvious reasons, uh, the numbers dropped severely in the beginning of the pandemic. But what about um, before pandemic? How were you, were you, would you say you were um, meeting needs? Were you understaffed? Were you trying to expand? What What was the uh, situation then and how do you see things moving forward? Well, actually, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we, were, we were doing probably about 3,000 or plus trips a day and that included uh, Handyvan and our supplemental providers. And now that number has dropped significantly, of course, for the supplemental providers because we are able to handle the majority of the trips. But we are still, uh, of course, have those those supplemental providers um, ready, getting them prepared and ready for any increases in our trip volume. Uh, we do anticipate uh, ridership to continuously move up um, slightly. We don't expect any um, real surges that stay and maintain the, themselves 
we've had some some spikes, but um, those were kind of geared around uh, end of the uh, beginning of the month and uh, holidays and things of that nature. But um, we are continuing to recruit. We are continuing to uh, prepare ourselves for the increases. At the same time, uh, we hope and anticipate that we can continue to relax our capacity restrictions, which will also open up the service to more ridership. And then we feel like at that point, we'll just be moving uh, moving forward and being able to service um, the community without any problems. Uh, that's great. Um, and then um, kind of related, um, what about like, uh, I'm not sure how, how it works for, for HandyVan. I'm not familiar with this, so I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit given, you know, we, we don't have that much time left, but um how how does budgeting work? Because, you know, of course, now you hear so much, you know, the government and it's not due to the tourism, blah, blah, blah. There's no uh, revenue coming in. And so they want to cut this and that and this and that. So how does the budgeting work for Handyvan and, and has it been affected or do you see it being affected from, you know, these kinds of budget cuts? That's also a very good question. And this is when one, one thing I will say I'm very proud of is that the ADA Act of 1990, ensures that our programs are running that they are because they are federally mandated they must run so budgeting yes is always going to be a concern in regards to operations and capital improvements but we will always get the funds necessary to provide reliable and safe service and even if we have to um kind of put them some upgrades or, or enhancements, or if we um, maybe not buy as many vehicles this year um, because we have less mileage because of COVID, uh, we can adjust and adapt into the next fiscal year where we can look to um, get back to um, where we believe that the service can run effectively and efficiently. So I am not concerned in regards to budget cuts that um, you might hear about in a in a uh, in a global sense because the ADA must uh, must provide funding for us to operate based on the ADA Act of nineteen ninety. My question is in regard to traveling to another state. Uh, generally, for going to a conference or something like, of that sort, we get the information as to um, what the name of the agency is and where we need to contact, but. Do you, on your side, like if I was going to visit a friend in, say, um, Seattle, that I would be able to um, get from your organization, which is how to contact the relative organization in Seattle so that I can qualify for rights there? Yes. Um, if you would contact either the eligibility center, they would be able to assist you with uh, direct contact. And if they can't, which I'd be quite surprised, you can contact customer service and I'm sure we'll be able to assist. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for answering those questions. Um, it's always nice to have the speaker live here because we can really dig into uh, the topic when we have a little bit of time like this. So thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much and enjoy the conference. Wonderful. So we are right on schedule and uh, I will squeeze in one quick door prize before we move on to our next uh, guest speaker. So this is going to be another uh, gift card. Yep. And this one is another one that uh, is uh, great if you're here in Hawaii. <laughs> so 
let's see. So it's a $25 Zippy's gift card. You can go get yourself some chili or some Portuguese bean soup or I don't know. I, I'd get a mahi mahi sandwich. Uh, but anyway, and this was donated by uh, Ronette Nakaima. And this one is going to oh, Laura Tanigawa. Hey, congratulations, Laura. Wonderful. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those gift cards. Making a lot of people happy. So uh, let's see. Let's move on to the next uh, speaker. And this is moving on with our theme of uh, transportation. It's almost like somebody really thought about the order that we place these guests in, huh? So um, we're going to be talking about the bus. And our guest speaker is uh, the bus's interim president. And her name is Jenny uh, Lemaota. Welcome. Hi, good afternoon. Well, you did a pretty good job with my last name. Good job. <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> But uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you to Michael for that great presentation on Handyvan. Uh, Michael has been with us for a couple of months, and he's jumped into the seat and done a great job. Um, his past experience with paratransit definitely shines through. So thank you, Michael, very much. Um, can you folks, can you see me? Are you able to hear me? Zoom webinar window. Okay. Yes. I want to make yes. sure. Great, great. Okay. So um, I am the current acting vice um, president for OTS, and we oversee both the bus and the handy van. Our former president, Roger Morton, after 42 years of service at OTS, he retired from OTS and he's now actually the director for the Department of Transportation Services. So he's still our boss in a sense. Um, so we work very closely with him still. Um, so I'll be covering the, covering the bus and a couple of updates um, about what's going on at the bus. So Michael mentioned that uh, we will be celebrating the 25th anniversary for the handy van next March. So that's exciting. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary for the bus where we've been doing, the city has been doing the service um, the revenue service for 50 years. So that was pretty exciting for us. We carry pre-COVID numbers about 180,000 riders per year. So it's a pretty vast service that we typically provide. Um, we have about 1,500 employees under the bus, 1,000 who are operators. They use 540 buses to cover 101 bu bus routes daily and also to stop at about 4,000 bus stops throughout the island. So it's a pretty substantial service um, that we put out there. And, you know, this past, this pandemic that we're going through definitely emphasized how essential public transportation is for Hawaii. Um, even though, you know, everything was shut down, we still had about 40% of our riders riding on a daily basis. That goes to show that there are many people who still relied on the bus to get to work, to get to the doctors, to pick up groceries and so, and so forth. So, you know, it's very proud to be a part of the bus and we really appreciate all of our customers. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead. I'm, I'm going to have a little, I'm going to try a little slideshow here. If it doesn't work out so well, Vicki, you let me know and I can stop it, but I'm going to try. So with regards to COVID, so from the beginning, um, we, it, it's always been three things. We want people to stay home when they're sick, to sanitize your hands as much as you can, especially before getting on the bus and after getting off the bus. 
And for a while now, we've had a no mask, no ride policy. And this past February, it actually became a federal mandate to wear your mask at any bus stop or transit center. So you should have, when you're waiting for the bus, you should already have your mask on. And of course, even as you get onto the bus, you want to make, make sure that you keep that mask on. Okay. There are certain masks that are allowed and certain masks that are not allowed. Masks allowed include double layered cloth masks, disposable, disposable masks that are usually two or three ply or two layered gaiter. Masks that are not allowed include masks that have exhalation valves, vents or holes, shirts that you pull over your face, scarves, bandanas or face shields only. Okay. And now we do understand that some people may need a medical exemption. So if you think that you need a medical exemption because you can't wear a mask that is, that is allowed, you can call our customer service at 848-555 and press 3. Again, that number is 848-5555 and press 3. They're open from 7.30 in the morning to 4 o'clock Monday through Friday, and they can help you there if you need so. If you do get a medical exemption, um, what will be provided to you is a card that has your picture on it along with your name and what that exemption is. Okay. Um, couple, a couple of exemptions that, that are pretty common is we do, the exemption might be you are allowed to wear a face shield only. And there are a couple out there where a person is actually allowed not to wear a mask at all. Now, something that's really exciting for us right now, and I'm sure that you folks have heard about it in the news, effective July 1st, 2021, only holocard or cash will be accepted on the bus. Now, what's the holocard? The holocard is a smart card. It looks like a credit card. And on that card, you will be able to store your monthly or your annual or cash value for single rides. And that those items will be stored in the back office of your account. Okay. We've actually been doing this for about a little bit over a year. We've been rolling it out. And we've been rolling it out in phases. Okay. As of date, we have about 46,000 adult cards that are registered out there. We have 8,200 8, um, disabled cards, disability cards out there, and about 30,000 senior cards. So we've been moving along um, pretty well with this. And we're pretty confident that everything is working well. So effective July 1st, we will pull all the paper passes, as, as including the day pass that's on the bus right now. The holocard, although we're pulling these paper passes and, and having people use the holocard, cash will still be accepted on the bus. So you don't have to worry about that. However, on the rail, only the holocard will be accepted. There will be no cash accepted on the rail. There will be ticket vending machines at the rail station. So if you need to purchase a card or load your card, you will be able to do it at the rail station. Okay. Um, let's see. Now, the benefits of a holocard. Now, you're thinking to yourself, why do I? Why should I do this, right? Because you're still going to be accepting cash, all these things. Well, if you want to get your pass product, because um, I do know, because because a lot of the pass products for the dis for the disabled is discounted, so you want to make sure you get your holocard. Now, if it's lost or stolen, you can transfer your pass products that you have on your holocard to a new holocard without having to pay for the pass again. I know some, some people have, sometimes we lose or misplace our card and we'd have to go back to the bus pass office. 
get a new card, and then pay for the entire pass again. So if you have a holo card, you no longer have to worry about that. You can change your whatever is in, whatever you had on your card. You can transfer it to a new card that you that you get at the bus pass office. And also, if you do do single rides sometimes and you use cash, you'll no longer have to worry about getting the exact change for your single rides. As for the fare structure, right now the prices will still be the same. It's still intact: one dollar ride, six dollar monthly, thirty five dollar annual. Um, but what will be added on in the future are cap fares. So what cap fares are, are is you put cash value on your holo card, and as you tap, they will deduct for one ride, which is one dollar in the case of this of the disability card. And as you reach to your monthly, your daily amount, your monthly amount, or your annual amount as you ride, it will cap off. So, for example. The monthly pass is six dollars. Once I tap six times, the rest of the month is free. It's a dollar a ride. For the annual pass, once I tap thirty-five times, I'm good for the rest of the year. Okay, so it does help in that sense of being able to pay for your bus rides in a more manageable way. Okay, now how do I get my holo card? For the disability holo card, when you get your new Or you're renewing your card, you have to come to the bus pass office on Middle Street. When you come to the bus bus pass office on Middle Street, please make sure you have a valid government issued photo ID and also a current completed application certified by a healthcare professional licensed in the state of Hawaii. Application forms are definitely available on our website www.thebus.org, or you can always call our customer service. Between the hours of 7:30 and 4 o'clock at 848-5555 and press three. Now boarding with your holo card. As you board the bus, the validator will be located on your right-hand side at the top of the flight of the stairs. Okay. When you tap your card, you want to listen for this sound. That ukulele strum means that your card has been accepted. You have the right. Pass on your card, or you have the, um, the you have a cash value on there that's acceptable. Now you want to make sure you don't get this next sound. That beep beep sound means that your card does not have sufficient funds on it. Okay, so always remember when you're using your holo card before you go out, make sure you load your holo card, make sure you have your pass on there, and then you also want to make sure when you tap your card on the validator. You want to make sure you're actually tapping the card and not your entire wallet, because a lot of times I see people trying to tap their wallet, um, thinking that the card will be able to read through it, but a lot of times the card won't be won't be able to do that. So you want to make sure you bring your card out and tap that card directly onto um, the validator. Okay. Now, if you and of course one more thing, you wait for that ukulele sound that I, I tapped, um, I played a little while ago. Before you start proceeding to the back of the bus, once you hear that ukulele song, you can proceed safely back to your seat. Okay. Now, if you have any more, if you need any more information about the Holo Card program, please call seven six eight four six five six to speak with a Holo Card representative. Again, that number is seven six eight four six five six. Okay. Another cool thing about this Holo Card too is once you register it into the system. You'll be able to check things like your card value. 
right? How much cash do I have on there? Do I have my monthly pass on there? And you can call the Holo Card Center and they can tell you all of those things. You'll also be able to check your ride history, you know? Um, and another great thing, again, is if you do lose your card, you can call the Holo Card Center and they'll be able to suspend the card until you're able to transfer all of your past products or your cash value to your new card. Now, as for riding the bus, the first thing, of course, what you always want to do is make sure you know your route to your destination, right? Um, you can, you're able to call our bus information office at 848-5555, press 2 to speak with a representative, and that person will be able to help you. They will need your starting location and your destination and the time that you want to travel. They will also need to know what bus stop you're located at. Right? So where are you located so that they can make sure that they get you, give you the right information and which bus, they'll tell you which bus stop to get off of. And if anything, they'll also tell you if you need to transfer between buses to get to your destination. Another cool feature that probably a lot of you are familiar with is our hail, right? Our estimated arrival time system. Now, all of our bus stops, they do have a unique ID, right? There's raised numbers on a little sign next to the bus stop. And if you frequently ride, you will want to make note of your bus stop number when you call Hale, right? The number for Hale is 848-555 and press 1. When prompted, you enter your bus stop number to hear the arrival times for all your buses that are coming to that bus stop. So that's number one, knowing where we're going. Number two, don't forget your mask. You want to make sure you have your mask on. Again, you need to start wearing that as soon as you get into the transit center or near the bus stop. Another good tip, too, is also to arrive at the bus stop 10 minutes before scheduled time. That's just to make sure that we don't, you know, you want to do it safely, so you want to make sure you're not rushing to get to your bus stop. Okay. And make sure you're standing next to the bus sign. Okay, That's always a great way. Our, our operators always look to make sure, you know, they kind of peep out of their window to make sure that there's nobody waiting for the bus who's sitting down. But the best, best bet is to stand near the bus stop sign so that they know for sure that you are waiting for them. And of course, when the doors open, you want to make way for the passengers that are coming out. Again, safety first, right? Um, the bus operator will wait for you. So don't worry. Let those people come out so that you can safely board. As you also know, all of our buses are ADA accessible. Right. All cities, all city buses are ADA accessible and they are able to kneel and make it easy to walk up the steps. However, if you need to use the ramp or lift, please let the operator know and they will provide the ramp or lift or lift. Here's the sound for the lift coming up, coming down for you. Then you go ahead. You get onto the bus at the top of the stairs. You will want to tap your whole card or deposit your cash into the fare box. And remember to listen for that ukulele sound. Okay. As you proceed to find your seat, at all, if, if possible, please always get a seat if possible. That's the safest thing to be seated. But if not, if you're not able to find a seat, always hold on to the railings. Okay. Please use caution while exiting the bus. And you also want to listen. There's a lot of announce, announcements that come through in our annunciator within the bus. So you always want to listen for that. And it also tells you where the location of the bus is, where we are in route. So it'll give you a heads up that your bus stop might be coming around the corner. Okay. 
And when you're ready to get off, you can pull the cord or press the bus, the stop request button located by the windows. Stop requested. And one thing you, one thing we always want to do, I see a lot of this when I'm reviewing videos um, from, from incidents that happened on the bus. A lot of times our customers feel that they need to rush. You know, they're, they're getting off the bus. My bus stop is coming. They pull the cord and they're rushing to get to the door while the bus is in motion. Now, that's definitely one of the most unsafe things that we can do when we're riding the bus. You want to make sure that at all times possible, please stay still while the bus is in motion. Stay in your seat. Please hold on. The bus is departing. Now as for the future of the bus. Um, the state's goal right now is to have 100% renewable energy by 2045. We just got our three first electric buses in. And we're pretty excited about it. It's definitely going to be a huge learning curve for us. And we're scheduled to receive 14 more to be delivered by the end of August. So we'll have 17 electric buses on the road and we will be learning about them over the next couple of years. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, we have 540 buses. So the goal is to transition all of our buses and, of course, also down the line, our handy vans to electric renewable energy fueled buses and vans. So this is definitely exciting. One thing that's different about the buses and you'll notice um, is that the sound, there is not much sound in there. They're running on batteries. So there is no engine transmission or any of those things making noises as they approach, um, approach the stop. We are looking into um, some solutions to the fact that we want to make sure that people know that the buses are coming because we do know that there's many of our customers that rely on sound. Um, so we're looking at some solutions at, um, for that, whether it be a button that the operator can press when they are approaching a bus stop or if it's controlled by the signal, signal signaling. So if the bus operator clicks on the right signal, the sound, that little button or that noise that comes out will come out to let the person know at the bus stop that the bus is there because they are quite a lot of <laughs> a lot quieter than, um, than our buses right now. Now, um, just some, some important contact information that I want to go over again, just in case you have some follow-up questions. Um, bus information office, you can call 848-5555 and press 2. Um, and then our customer service office is at 848-5555, press 3. And that's all that I have. Mahalo for riding the bus. All I want to know is, are your drivers on the bus and handy van vaccinated fully? No, they're no. not. We have 50% of our operators have been fully vaccinated, so it's not mandated for them to be vaccinated. Oh. Okay, thank you. But the interaction between the operator and the customer is definitely um, limited on the bus side. Um, yes. Uh, so recently I went down to the office um, to uh, convert my disability bus pass to the holo card, but I was a few months too early. So just um, I just wanted to let everyone know you don't need to um, convert your pass until the, the month that your pass is due to expire. For instance, mine expires in um, September of 21. Uh, so I was a few months early, so I'm just going to um, keep my paperwork and then bring it back when uh, that uh, time is due and that 
um, they will still accept the plastic disability bus pass. Um, and then the second thing, I don't know if any of you use the transit app that you can download onto your phone, but I use it all the time. I find it really useful. Um, a lot of the buses have GPS and it's real time. Um, I don't know if it's ex totally accessible to blind people, to totally blind, but because I'm partially blind, I can, I can use that app. Um, and then my other comment would be, it is um, immensely helpful when all the buses announce what route it is and, and where it's going to us uh, standing at the bus stops. So I definitely do appreciate that the bus is very proactive and, um, you know, has that like route for New Uwanu, you know, or, uh, you know, route L Hawaii Kai. You know, that's very helpful for us when we're standing at the bus stop. I kind of wish they would do it more than once. I, I kind of wish they would announce it on the bus twice. And it is also really helpful um, that the bus announces what stops are coming up. So that's just some feedback. Um, I use the bus a lot. And I definitely appreciate all the uh, all of the capabilities and routes. Um, and uh, most of what I can do... Uh, or what I need to do, I can do on the great feedback, especially about the card that you don't have to um, come in until your card actually expires for the uh, for the disability card. Um, yeah. So question: um, If I already have a holo card, I mean, sorry, if I already have a disability um, bus pass and it expired like almost a year ago, was there ever a point where I need to uh, resubmit a disability statement or anything? Is or is it that kept on file? You, you will need to bring your your valid government-issued photo ID and a completed application form on the, from our website, www.thebus.org, or you can call our customer service line at 848-5555 and press 3, and they can help you with that. But, you, yeah, you would need to come down and bring your, your documents with you at our bus pass office on Middle Street. Okay, so because it expired, I have to um, bring back the documentation with the um, disability signed by, like, a doctor and everything. That, that, that's my understanding, yes. Okay. Okay, thank you. Oh, yeah, so uh, similar question to, to Kylie's question, but um, so my bus pass expired. My handy van is still eligible, so is still valid. So do I need to still fill out that form again if my handy van is still evaluated and my bus, my bus is um, expired? Your bus, your, I'm so sorry. So your handy van card is still okay. Yes. Your disability card is not okay. It's not yeah, so, correct. So the bus pass expired because it's only for one year, but the handy van is given for two years. Right, right. Um. So because of the pandemic, I didn't read. Uh, re you still need to get onto the bus, right? Yes. I, I, I use the bus more regularly, but I haven't used it for the past year because of COVID. So I've not been using it that, that often. Right. So right. I, I didn't renew it. I, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm not able. I, I don't want to give you the wrong information. So I would suggest that you give a call to our customer service line at 848-5555. Okay. And, press three. and the, re the reason why is because I know that they're working on converting the handy van cards uh -huh. Holo cards, and with that handy van card that will have your picture and everything on it, you'll also be able to tap and ride the bus with it. So you'll—I right. know that they're in the middle of transitioning that over. Okay. Um, 
So I think it's happening like within the next week or so. So it'll be best for you to call customer service so you get the right information. I would hate for you. Right, yeah, because my handy van card is uh, the same card, but just the, 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 the two numbers on there. But yeah, I'll give a call and I'll get more detail. And they can clarify that for you. Yeah, thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you, and we don't have any cans up. Uncle Nurgur has left the meeting. I have, I have one window. question. Um, and this is a follow-up question to the earlier one um, about COVID uh, and the drivers. So if it's not required of them to get the uh, shots, is there any kind of um, – do the drivers get tested before they go on their runs? No, they, do, they don't get tested. They do get temperature checked. There is somebody who, of course – See, looks at them every day, our dispatch, make sure that there's nothing wrong, that they're not impaired in any way. Um, at that mm-hmm. time, we could probably see if they were feeling sick or looking sick that we would at that time. Yeah. But they do get temperature checked. Um, That's of course, constantly ask the questions on whether or not you're feeling sick, right? That's a daily thing. Have you traveled? Have you been you know, to anybody? So those daily questions go out to our operators. On a reg- on a daily basis, um, and of course, it's also the barrier that we have up. Um, I, I don't know if you folks have noticed um, the barrier there, but there is a barrier that um, that that blocks the the operator from um, the customers coming on. Good. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, th- thank you so much for, for sharing that information uh, with us. I, I, I too was riding the bus very regularly up until the pandemic and my, my bus pass expired as well. And I was, I think I had heard of the holocard and I kind of forgot about it, but yeah, th- thank you for the information. I, it was uh, very useful to me as well. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right. So we'll just get right into the, the next person because we are right on time. Um, so Next up, we're going to be having um, some safety tips, and we're going to be hearing from the Honolulu uh, Police uh, Department's uh, com- community. Uh, sorry, <laughs> community policing community policing team. Apologies, uh, and we're going to be hearing from uh, Corporal Ronald Pagan, I believe. Yeah, and he is coming to us live. So welcome. Hi, thank you, Tony. I appreciate it. Um, my name is actually Corporal Roland Pagan. My brother is Ronald. He's a flight <laughs> attendant. He's not a police officer, but I, could, <laughs> I couldn't get that. Edited. Nope, not a problem. Not a problem. Um, again, I am a police officer with the Honolulu Police Department in Honolulu, Hawaii. It is my understanding that there may be people here from outside of Hawaii. So I'll try to answer whatever questions you may have um, for me, but um, know that different cities, different states have different laws, so it may be a little bit different. Um, I was asked um, by Vicky Kennedy to come and speak to you guys about some safety tips. Um, I'm going to keep that really short because I did want to also talk to you about our smart 911 system. Um, a couple of things um, we wanted to talk about with in regard to personal safety is um, when you leave your home. Um, what, what we suggest is that when you leave your home, you carry only what is absolutely necessary. Um, don't take all of your credit cards if you don't need them. Um, don't carry large bags if you don't need that kind of stuff. Um, carry your wallet or cash in your front pockets if you can, um, so that people can't just run up to you and, and grab it or cut the strap and stuff like that. Um, if you're using an ATM, use it in a very public place, um, preferably indoors um, where there's a lot of other people around. Uh, be aware of your surroundings at all times. Um, 
people tend to watch people at ATMs um, and they try to get to you just before you get your your money or your card is withdrawn so you can actually they can do another transaction uh, while your card and information is still inputted. Um, let's see here. Uh, when, when you're shopping, uh, shop and, and carry only what you can handle. Um, we don't suggest that you go and you shop until you drop or you're too tired um, and you're not able to uh, focus on what you're doing and, and who's around you and stuff like that. Shop during the day if possible. Um, travel traveling inside the stores, uh, keeping your packages with you all times and keeping an eye and uh, awareness of what's going on around you. Another thing that is happening right now that we did want to talk to you guys about is, is strangers at your door. Um, this is something that, that happens a lot where people think that uh, when people are coming to their door, that the idea is, well, if I don't answer the door or I don't say anything, then they'll think I'm not home and they'll just leave. What we like to do is we like to tell people that if somebody does come to your door um, and you don't intend to speak with them, uh, by all means, let them know that someone is home. You don't necessarily have to open the door. Um, you can look through a window or you can um, just make some type of noise behind your door to let them know that someone is home. Oftentimes, when people that are looking to commit a crime or, or break into a home, they may go and pose as a salesperson or uh, pretend to be looking for someone or uh, or something, and they'll knock on your door, and if no one answers, they'll, they'll, they'll think that no one's home, and they may try to break in. However, if you make some noise and let them know that you are there, but you're not interested in speaking to them, or you can't help them, then at least they know someone is in the home. Because the last thing you want is for you to pretend that you're not home, and they break in, and then now you're stuck in the home with someone that um, may do you harm because of the fact that they're in there to, to commit a crime, and now uh, they're confronted by you. When protecting yourselves, people people often ask us, what is the best advice on how to protect yourselves? Uh, and my answer is always the same. The best way to protect yourself from crime is to prevent crime from happening. A lot of people say, yeah, right. How do you do that? A couple of things. Realize that it, we want people to realize that crime and, and instances like that can happen to you. Um, the more you're aware of what's going on, uh, the more steps that you take to prevent those things, the less likely, likely it is for you to, to be a victim of crime. However, if we if we try to believe or live like we're we're living in a bubble where no one's going to touch us, that's where people get a little bit complacent, and there's an opportunity for you to become a victim. Uh, number two, be aware of your surroundings at all times. Constantly scan the environment. Uh, walk with awareness. Walk with confidence. Uh, walk with friends. Um, uh, try not to appear to be distracted at all times. Um, avoid potential dangerous situations. Um, and again, this is this is common sense types of thing that we that we ask you to use. That if you know you're walking somewhere and you get that little tingly, spidey sense that something may be wrong, trust your instincts and, and then walk the other way or um, get some attention from someone. Um, also, report any type of suspicious activity that you may see or observe or um, be aware of to the authorities. Um, don't just turn your back on it because if um, it's suspicious to you. It may be suspicious to someone else. Um, and what's suspicious to you may not get somebody else's attention. Um, I like to tell people that, you know, whenever you see something that's suspicious or feel that something is suspicious, um, that is something that you report based on what you feel. You know, I, I may feel um, something is not suspicious in my neighborhood because I see it all the time. However, if you're kind of new to an area and you feel that's suspicious, then by all means report it. Um, 
don't don't allow yourself to be a victim. Don't don't just um, arbitrarily trust anyone. Um, a lot of things that are going on right now, um, especially with tax season, you know, there's a lot of scams going on. Uh, different types of scams. There's internet scams where they they tell you that you won money. Um, there's bill payer scams where they tell you that you owe them money. Um, one thing that we've talked to almost every company that's ever been um, suspected or um, not suspected, but people try to use them as um, the reason that they're calling, like the IRS. Um, the IRS does not ask you or take Walmart gift cards or Target gift cards or Best Buy gift cards as payment for um, your tax debt. So if you start getting those types of calls and, and they tell you, oh, we want you to go send us some money order, this kind of stuff, by all means, hang up. You can call the police or actually try to get a hold of uh, that that agency themselves directly so that you're calling, making the call, and, and you're speaking to someone. Uh, the IRS does not call anyone on the phone for payments. Uh, they will send you a letter. And trust me, I know I just got two recently. Um, uh, a lot of these agencies will not just call you for information, try to get stuff from you on the phone. Um, couple of different scams. Another one is, is a personal emergency scam. I've, I've personally been um, an attempted victim of this, where someone will call you and say that they're a friend or a family member, and they're in dire straits, and they need some help, or they need some money, um, and they ask you to wire them some money. Um, this, this is one that they tend to target, um, and the, the highest victim category is our elderly because a lot of times what they'll do is when they call and they realize that they're speaking to someone um, of an elderly, someone more elder, what they'll do is they'll try to play on the heartstrings and, and tell you that, oh, this is your grandson or um, your nephew or something like that. And they, they tell you that they're in trouble and they need this money. And, and a lot of people out of the kindness of their heart uh, believe that um, they're trying to help their family members and they land up sending money and they become a victim of a scam. Talked about the money scams. Um, if, if you are um, a victim of a scam, what you can do is con again, contact the company directly. Uh, do not send any money, um, especially again, like if they're asking for gift cards. Um, again, the IRS does not ask you to do anything on the phone. The other type of scam is the, the online dating scam where someone will start to call you and start to talk to you and try to romance you on the phone um, or online and try to get you to send them money to either come and visit you or to take care of something so that they can spend their money to come and visit you um, and that kind of stuff. Again, if it's, if it's someone that, that you don't know, um, there's a very good possibility that they're probably not falling in love with you. Um, you know, you, you kind of have to have a relationship with someone before that kind of stuff happens. So if someone is calling you out of the blue um, and you don't you don't trust them, hang up. You can call 911, report the scam. We can try to get the numbers and um, see if we can call them back. But unfortunately, a lot of these people that are online or doing these phone scams happen to have quite a bit of different numbers and ways to get a hold of people. Um, if you can, cut off communication with them. Um, by blocking the numbers, reporting the number as a, a spam call or a scam call. And, and basically, as far as the safety is, is, again, it's just being aware of what's going on around you, uh, paying attention to what's happening in the news. Um, unfortunately, we can't always believe everything that's being said in the news, but um, when, when they start reporting different types of scams, they, the Honolulu Police Department will go onto the news and let them know that these scams are happening, like the one recently that was reported regarding um, the Honolulu Police Department um, asking people for money to donate to the police department. Uh, the Honolulu Police Department does not do that. 
Um, the other thing I did want to talk about was the Smart One 911 app. I'm not sure how many of you guys are aware of that, but the Smart One One Smart 911 app is an app that you can go on. So it's a nationwide app. Not every city or state has it, um, but there are many throughout the country that do. And what it is is you can you can just Google Smart 911, and on this app, what it does, it allows you to put in your information. Um, contact information for yourself in case there's an emergency. Uh, the good thing about this app is you put in whatever information you want in there. Um, they won't ask you for your social security number, any bank account information, and stuff like that. So don't don't feel that this is a scam or uh, or feel concerned that somebody could get your information and and basically or try attempt to make you uh, a victim of uh, identity theft. Um, so if you go to the Smart 911 app. You can go in there. You can set it up, and then the very nice thing about it is, in that you can put down any type of medical conditions you have. Um, you can put down if you have pets in your home. Um, you can put down emergency contact information. Um, so if if anything was ever to happen to you, and we got a call to your house um, with that emergency contact information, when somebody calls nine one one, we send somebody to your home. If that information says if you call nine, for example, if you call nine one one and you hang up. Um, what happens now, if you're not a member of the 911, the smart 911 app, what happens, they'll send the police to your house, letting us know that there's a drop 911 call. We'll go to your house. Once we get there, we'll determine what's happening. If you're um, in a medical condition, what we'll do is we'll let our dispatcher know that now we need an ambulance. So they will then call an ambulance at the fire department, activate them and have them come to the scene. However, if you set up your smart 911 app and you put down any type of physical disabilities or, uh, uh, mental disabilities or any other problems that you have, um, when you call 911, if you hang up and you can't talk, they will get this information so they'll know, for example, if you're a diabetic, what they'll do is they'll automatically start sending uh, the ambulance because in your profile it says that you're diabetic and if you can't respond there may be a possibility that you're having a diabetic um, episode. Um, also with this app, what will happen is if we can't get a hold of you, we'll contact somebody that's on your emergency list in that smart one nine one one app, and we will contact them and let them know, hey, we just got a call from your mother, auntie, cousin, friend's house, wherever it was that you list, and let them know that the police and the, or the fire or the ambulance is actually responding to that area, so they can be aware of what's happening. Uh, another thing about this app is you can actually put in um, any pets you may have. So if say if you have the unfortunate event where there's a fire in your home. And you're able to go out, um, but you can't actually talk to anyone. With this app, the dispatchers will know that you may have two dogs and a cat. So when the firemen go in, they'll, they'll see what they can do as far as rescuing the animals as well. Um, you can do one app for yourself. You can put all of your family members in your household on there. Um, you can put down your email address as well as your phone numbers, your contact phone numbers. There's an area where you update your account setting or your profile. You can put down um, any type of medical conditions, any type of medication you take. You take. You can put down your um, your physician, your blood type, all of this kind of stuff that will help um, the ambulance, the, the doctors, or the fire department, or even the police, should there ever be an emergency to your house. Um, the other good thing about this is if you put this on your phone and you're registered. Even if you travel outside of Hawaii, if you travel to a state or city that has a smart 911 app, if you call, they can actually uh, track your phone and they can track you to the 911 app and they can, they'll, they'll know that um, 
you may have these physical um, or medical conditions that they may, may, they may need to be aware of when they respond to you. Um, again, so that stops them from having just send the police officers there, there to find out what's going on and then to find out that we need an ambulance and we have to roll the ambulance. Um, again, you can put your family information, you can put your work information, uh, emergency contacts. Um, by putting this in as well, like in mine, I have my mother-in-law who lives by herself. Um, if anything happens to her at her address um, and that number pops up, it'll link it to my account as well. So they can call me because I linked her to my account. So even if she doesn't set it up, um, we do ask that everybody set one up themselves um, just because it, it, it allows us to get more information from you. Um, with my mother-in-law's on mine, basically all it has is her phone number and her address. So if anything happens, they'll call me. But it doesn't have her medical conditions or any type of uh, disabilities that she may have that they may be want, we may want them to be aware of. So again, we ask that you guys set up your own as well. But it is, it, it is a great app. And like I said, it's something that we rolled out years ago um, in Honolulu. Um, and it has slowly been growing throughout the country. Um, we got the information from another uh, county's agency. And then we realized that it was something good that we should be using. So um, HPD went and updated their system so that they could use the smart one, 911 and get the information from that. Um, I believe that's all I have. I'm here to answer any questions you guys may have, uh, whether it's crime related, police department related, or any police myths that you want to have cleared up by a police officer that you thought you'd never be able to ask. Okay, it, it's Vicki, uh, uh, Ronald. Um, thank you so much for your presentation. Now, with the smart 911, will it also go uh, send the information to the fire department? Yes, ma'am. Whenever you call 911, um, the information, again, if, it, if it's a medical condition or we can't speak to anyone there um, yeah. and we know that there's a medical condition, they will go ahead and start sending the ambulance until we find out what's going on. Um, uh-huh. the, police, the police always tend to get there first, um, mm-hmm. only because we're already all over the place. Um, yeah. You know, with, with a fire, if there's actually a fire when, when someone's calling 911, you know, we'll normally somebody else will call about the smoke and stuff like that. But this information does go to um, our 911 dispatchers, which actually route the calls to either the fire or the ambulance as well. Okay. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. So, officer, say like I'm shopping by myself. I collapse. I have a cell phone. Does the smart 911 app able to um, get into the app and see if I have the app and if there's an emergency contact info without having to unlock my phone? Um, well, basically, the, the way that smart 911 works is is if you call from your phone, yeah? So, if, if, you, if you collapse then and you don't you don't call 911, we wouldn't be able to get into your phone. However, if you set your phone up that you have that one button push for emergency and, and, yeah. and, and you have it set up that way and you push that, then, then we would be able to get all the information based on what you put in your, your um, profile on the smart, one, smart 911 app and we would be able to get that information. So again, if you put um, all of your medical conditions or all of your, your personal contacts and who you want notified, um, we would be able to do that. And again, if we get the call from that number and you collapse, you know, and we don't, we're not able to respond to you or you're not able to respond to the dispatcher, um, what they'll be able to do is they'll know, like if, say, they hear background, 
you know, somebody, oh, she's passed out kind of thing, we would know that, you know, there may be a medical condition that will start rolling uh, ambulance towards your location where we ping your phone so we can get the location of where you're at. So I have to call. Or the, the call has to come from my phone? Yes, yes. So, but if I black out, so if so if so if you're right, so if you so if you black out and then you're with somebody else and they call, um, we wouldn't know your information based on on, on that because it has to be a call that comes from the phone number. Because the way the app work is works is it it registers your phone number. So again, most phones now, most smartphones, they have a like a one button push emergency. Even mm-hmm. when your phone is locked, you can push to to dial nine one one. So with that. If somebody were to grab your phone and they knew how to do your um, emergency calls, because like my phone, when it's locked, if I push a button, if I can't unlock it, it has a uh, push for emergency app and then or emergency calls only. So we could actually go there and we could actually dial 911 from your phone because we wouldn't have to unlock your phone to call 911. I'm sorry. That's what I should have said in the beginning. Most phones, you don't have okay, to cool. unlock it to call 911. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Who who developed the the smart nine one one app, and what is the adoption process like for that, and integrating into you know the the system here? Um, I'm not exactly sure who created it. Um, it came to us from um, actually one of our chiefs. Now, actually went to a conference in the mainland. He and he found out about it, and he went and saw about having it adopted here and what they did was they went and added the software to our 911 dispatch system that will allow them to actually get any information so when you call from a certain number the number shows that you're registered with the smart 911 and then we can get that they can link it and we can get that information interesting so it's it's some sort of third party non-governmental entity and then that system gets adopted within the police uh, department Yes, the, the police departments throughout the United States. And again, this app, this um, the smart one nine one one doesn't ask you for anything um, that could necessarily be led or used for um, identity theft. Um, and again, when you when you set up your profile, you set it up based on what you want to put in there. So if you don't want to put your birthday, um, in fact, when it has birthday, it just has month and year. Um, you know, and so it doesn't, and we're not going to ask you for your social security number. Um, so there's very limited information that anyone could really get from this if they were trying to get information on you as far as um, using it for identity theft. And, and as far as we know, we've had never had any um, breaches with this software to say that there was a concern about people's identities being uh, stolen or used from um, hacking of this app itself. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, what about like um, within Hawaii, do you have any idea for like how many people have been using this? What has the adoption uh, for this uh, been like? Um, We don't have that because it is an individual thing. So and again, if if there's a thousand people in Hawaii that are using it and then we get 100 people that came from California that using it. You know, now mm-hmm. when they're in Hawaii, they'll be able to use it as well. So um, it, it's one of those things that it's actually the database is actually a nationwide database. Mm-hmm. So, again, if you were to take your phone and you were to go travel to the mainland somewhere um, and you call from that number, it would still show up and they'd be able to get your information if they have the, the smart 911 application with their 911 agencies. Mm, okay. 
So we don't we don't necessarily keep the number of how many people are applying. We just try to tell everybody that we can about it because of the benefits of, you know, the biggest one of the biggest things, especially for our Kapuna, is you can put down um, an emergency contact. So you know, if we have a, a Kapuna that's living by themselves, you know, a lot of times when we go to the when we go to for any type of incident, we go to the house. We have to try to look around and try to find information of who we can right, call right. if there's not. Um, anything posted you know before years ago they used to say you know write a little piece of paper put it in your refrigerator and put um like a color-coded magnets on top so people would know that that was the first place people would go um mm-hmm. now you know with everybody having a smartphone um you know the, the phone is being used for all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um you know and, and, and another example even with a smartphone is on my smartphone on the front of the screen um i can put down um because i actually lost my phone at once and so I put down that if found, call and I have my wife's phone number. Oh. So, you know, if you set up your, your, your main screen that way, if someone, if something happens to you, they pick up your phone, you know, they have in case of emergency call this number. Um, again, that's another way that we can get a hold of people that, that know who you are and stuff like that. But again, the smart 911 gives us actually the name, information, address of the people that you want to have contacted. So if we can't get a hold of them by phone, we can actually send an officer up to their right. home to let them know. You know, somebody, hey, somebody's got hurt. Somebody does an incident and we're trying to get a hold of a, a contact and we wanted to let you know. So. Mm, wonderful. But I, I, I mean, I, I guess you, you might not have this on hand just, but I, I guess you do have statistics for what percentage of people that called 911 have, uh, you, you get the, the, it shows up that they have this, right? Um, I would, I, I, I haven't gotten it. I'm sure that if I called our 911 dispatchers and got the information, sure, sure. I could probably get it from them. Right, um, right. But, but yeah, yeah there's no way to know how many people overall, because not everybody's calling 911, right. obviously. Right. So, yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Officer Pagan. It's, it's uh, wonderful to learn about this very important topic. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you, Vicky, for inviting me. Thank you. All right. So let me, you know what, uh, I'll save, I'll save the, the door prize for the next uh, after the next speaker, I'll I'll keep a little suspense going. We have I don't know like six or so more I think, uh, but we'll we'll get straight into the next speaker. Um, so we're going from uh, safety to uh, diet and health. So our next speaker is going to be talking about yeah health and and uh, another very important topic. All right, so she is a registered dietitian and uh, a certified uh, diabetes uh, education specialist uh, at uh, Kaiser Medical, and uh, her name is Courtney Inouye. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I want to thank you for allowing me to do this presentation. Um, it's always fun to talk about food. Um, one of my favorite saying is, we are what we eat. And sometimes we, we don't only eat with our eyes. We eat right with our ears and in our smells and how it feels. So we can never forget about uh, eating, period, right? Okay, so I entitled this Healthy Living, Nutrition, and You. So the objectives, are, what I'm going to be talking about is how we can make every bite count. And that is the theme for the 2020 
dietary guidelines, which the USDA has come up with. They come up with these guidelines every five years, and it is geared for, I believe they say, healthy individuals or individuals age 2 to 99. I don't, I think they kind of cut it off before 100, but... um and I wanted to say that I put a little more emphasis for those who are chronologically aged 60 years or older. And I kind of added that term chronologically aged because sometimes we have bodies that are younger, even though our birth certificate may say we're 60 or sometimes some things happen and our birth certificate age is something else, but our bodies are acting like we're older. So there's within the dietary guidelines, they have recommendations from infant and toddlers, school-aged kids, adolescents, adults, and older adults. And I hope within there, I'm going to answer some of the basic questions like, so what can I eat and how much? Because those are the two questions that um, help you build a good, I don't want to say diet, and I'll tell you why later, but eating pattern. Okay, so the dietary guidelines are available on the web if you're interested, but I call these the four hallmarks of it. The first one is to follow a healthy dietary pattern at every life stage, as I said, from young kid time to our um, kapuna. Secondly, we often say that we try to customize, enjoy nutrient-dense foods, and beverage choices. So we want things to have vitamins and minerals or other things and not just be uh, simple sugars or fat, etc. And that's why we like to use the term nutrient dense. And it should reflect personal preferences, cultural traditions, and budgetary considerations. I kind of want to break that mold of eating healthy is expensive. Granted, I do understand sometimes it's not as cheap. They seem to make the quote-unquote bad foods cheaper, but some you could work in some of those cheaper options within a person's pattern. Thirdly, to focus on meeting food groups and stay within calorie limits. And... Fourth, to limit foods and beverages that are higher in sugars, added sugars, saturated fat, sodium, and limit alcoholic beverages. So, okay, how do I follow a healthy dietary pattern? I just wanted to share, I do have some statistics. I'm sorry. 74% of adults are overweight or have obesity, and that's based on what we call BMI. BMI stands for body mass index. It is basically your weight in kilograms divided by a the square of your height in meters. For example, 25 kilograms per meter squared or greater is considered to be overweight if you're BMI is less than 18.5, you are considered underweight. So 18.5 to 24.9 is over, is within the normal range, they say. 25 to 29.9 is overweight, 30 and above is obese. And I leave you that question. What if I'm more muscular? True muscle weighs more than fat, and that is not taken into consideration with this number. Also, the flip side is 
it's been a few years now, but for Asians, they have lowered the BMI standards. Okay. Um, they say adults 60 years and older have an obesity rate of 41%, but adults that fall into the age range of 40 to 59 have the highest rate at 43%. And the more alarming statistic is that 40% of children and adults are considered overweight. So these days there's an emphasis on weight. Just to share Children and adolescents have BMIs based on where they are in the growth curve. So it's slightly different than what we I just mentioned about adults. In terms of chronic diseases, heart disease remains the leading cause of death. Uh, almost 35% of the adults have prediabetes and people 65 years and older have the highest rate of prediabetes at 48%. So we not only look at weight but also how the diet can contribute to increasing a person's risk for this i wish i could see some of you um covid weight gain to tell you the truth do you know i was in denial over this um because you know where i work i work in the hospital so i've chart reviewed i will admit i've chart reviewed i haven't had clearance to actually see these patients until they after the isolation but most of my covid individuals have lost weight right because one of the symptoms may be diarrhea they have taste and smell changes so they're not eating as much so i was in denial that there's actually a covid weight gain and all my coworkers told me i was wrong perhaps so i looked up there was a study, 40% of individuals gaining report gaining an average of 29 pounds due to this pandemic. So for fun, if I was in person, if I were in person, I would show you there's food models of fat. So I would have, I would have the five pound of fat. That's what I have, but I have pictures of six pounds. So I have to do this at least four times for 24 and the last one, five pounds. And maybe a better analogy i was trying to line up it's like three footballs would look like what five pounds of fat is so if you can imagine that's the average weight gain during this pandemic okay but let's get back to how we can eat oh i know why I don't say diet that reminds me okay so diet is spelled d-i-e-t the reason why I don't like using the word diet is when you take off the tea in diet, you get die. So sometimes that's the perception of what a diet is. So I like to reframe things and call it eating patterns. The overall dietary guidelines wants you to enjoy these and other nutrient-dense foods. We want to customize it to your individual needs and preferences. We want to reflect and make this a way that you can continue it on so you enjoy it. We should all enjoy eating. It's fun. We should incorporate cultural traditions and budgetary considerations. Um, as we age, unless you find the fountain of youth, you may have noticed or will notice that you may start to need less. And it could be true. 
older adults need less because they are less active. So you may not need as many calories. There's changes in our metabolism. Our bodies are not as efficient at breaking down some of our nutrients. And if you've noticed, sometimes we don't absorb them as well and they just go through us, etc. And we have age-related losses in bone and muscle mass. And muscle mass is what feeds on all of these calories. Next, I just briefly want to talk about the Mediterranean diet. Always is just a company that has many different food diet pyramids. Uh, Mediterranean diet, if you needed one specific one you wanted to follow, does have a lot of benefits. And not only for heart disease that's where i remember hearing it first but i was reading if you have kidney problems they recommend mediterranean um diabetes it may also help um the dietary pyramid came right before what we call the my plate and before that if you remember it used to be the five basic food groups and when i was in elementary school i always tell the story i remember the basic four so we've always evolved but some of the flaws or some of the pluses of the my plate is that it's not necessarily based on calories and they don't tell you about the size plate as dietitians we often say we should switch our plate from the dinner plates down to the salad plates. And I found this interesting fact. So salad plates are an average of eight to nine inches. Did you know that was the average size dinner plate in the 1960s? So it goes along with how we've grown bigger. Maybe it's because of our plates. Okay, so this is, I will focus more on the my plate. I will forget my pyramids and this was a food plate developed by Tufts and AARP Um, they have kind of geared it but I'll share and I like the way this picture is and I can describe it like the clock so in this photo from 12 to 3 they have about your grains Um, from 2 to 3 include your dairy from about Four to six is your protein foods. And then from six to 12 is both your fruits and vegetables. As we know, we are pushing everyone to have half their plate be fruits and vegetables. Especially for diabetes, uh, we talk about how half your plate should be veggies, a quarter is your whole grain, and the last quarter is your proteins. Um, Your fluids are on the side and actually in the middle, right where the two hands of the clock would be there's a circle to represent the healthy oils let's talk about how the different food groups that was mentioned on this plate so i'm gonna um there's an emphasis when you do have these different food groups that we want to get the foods that provide vitamins and minerals and have other health promoting components um let's get into it and i'm going to try to stick in some foods that locally which we can always try to include. Okay, so eat your veggies. I had to start off with them veggies. Um, there is a saying, there used to be five a day. Five a day still using kids, but overall the fruits and vegetables message is now fruit and veggies more matters. Regardless your veggies and the fruit, we want to eat a rainbow. You want to choose the different colors. Each color has a unique 
antioxidant that has various benefits. You don't only want to choose your greens, but you also want to choose other colors, your reds and the oranges, your purples, and even your white onions have a beneficial component to them. Um, in terms of people with diabetes, we do want to say you have to be careful of your starchy and your non-starchy. Your starchy vegetables being your potatoes, corn, and peas are the big factors. But we love including beans, peas, and lentils because they're complex and don't raise your blood sugar as fast. So they're a great source of also our favorite uh, nutrient of fiber for vegetables you can choose fresh frozen or even canned but we want to look for the no added salt version so we can cut back on our sodium lots of these vegetables provide many of our b vitamins and fiber and the amount to aim for within a day's two and a half to three cups and they're your regular measuring cups Fruits, I just wanted to emphasize we want to choose our whole fruits. Best if you can eat the fruit instead of juicing it. Um, there's some components of them you do miss. Fruits are come in fresh cans or even frozen. We have a variety here. Mm, some of you have better ones. Um, like my favorite is the, how, what's unique to us, the apple, banana, papayas, um, Mountain apples, star fruit, although if you have, if you're on dialysis, please don't choose that one. Jabon, um, just to name a few examples, your fruits provide us with vitamin C and fiber. And the goal is to eat one and a half to two cups daily. Okay, grains, make half your grains whole is the saying. Um, your grains can be good sources of fiber and B vitamins. There are a variety of like breads if you want to. I wanted to use an example, but you want to see if it's a whole grain based on that first ingredient. You just don't want to keep choosing all the enriched because they are masking the actual whole grain. Um, when you take a product from whole to process, you're losing a lot of times the fibers taken off and your B vitamins are stripped, although they may add it back. Examples of ingredients to look for are barley, buckwheat, oats, black cedar, quinoa is another a whole grain. And we're recommended to take in six to eight ounces a day. Um, this is where we can incorporate our starchy vegetables too like the potatoes the bread the okinawan sweet potato um and try to even mix our rice so it's half brown half white if we can't get the taste of strictly brown rice okay dairy dairy they actually do say we should try to get in one per serine not more than three cups a day dairy I don't want to forget, it provides us with calcium, vitamin D, and vitamin B12. And nowadays, there's so many different milk alternatives. Um, although the gold standard probably is still is cow's milk, but a lot of us do have problems digesting it. We lack the ability to break down the lactose. Um, 
But be careful on all of these different alternatives. Oat milk may be the hot new milk out there, but it doesn't have much to it. If you look at it, there's not as much protein. Um, almond milk, which I do like is an alternative, actually doesn't have much calories. So it depends what you're using it for. And you want to make sure that your milks are fortified to be similar. Rice milk is a good example. Um, dairy can be a source of protein for all of us. Sometimes we say to add some dairy to add calories to a soup. Making a cream soup is one way for having trouble gaining weight or losing weight, how we can build upon it. And I've also used dairy to thin out the taste of some of the nutritional supplements. I don't want to forget about them. Um, they're a good meal replacement. And if I say we are what we eat, if we take in a lot of those like boost or ensure it's okay because the content in there, there's lots of vitamins and minerals. Protein, go lean on protein, lean meats, poultry, eggs, and seafood, beans, peas, and lentils. I have them back here just to show that they're also a protein source. You can also get protein from nuts, seeds, and soy products. Um, getting in enough protein, so about six ounces a day or more, can or may help prevent the loss of lean muscle that happens with aging. But um, you have to be careful because I'm going to talk about some of these types of protein again when I talk about saturated fat. Okay. And fats and oils. Um, sometimes we should go light on it. You can include oils in foods such as seafood and nuts. Um, we recommend using liquid vegetable oils, whether it be soybean, corn, canola, or olive. You can use them in cooking or as part of a salad dressing. Sometimes if we need to gain weight, that's another way we'll tell you to add some plant fats and oils, not just avocado. And the recommendation of how much of the Oils to add is about five to seven teaspoons a day. Limit foods and some beverages. Um, we want to limit drinks that are higher in added sugar. We can include it to a certain extent, but we, you know, if you could, I don't want the juice to be the first thing and then you get full to eat that egg or something like that. You want to limit some alcoholic beverages. Also, we do overall want you to monitor your fluid intake because as we age, our thirst mechanism does not work as well. I want you to remember that you still need the same amount of fluids in general unless you have heart or kidney failure. And that's in those cases, fluids are limited and Fluids can come in the form of water, tea, coffee, juice, but also soups, fruits, and vegetables. Just to also remind you why all this fluid is important. Fluids help to regulate your body temperature, lubricate your joints, and to transport nutrients around the body. Okay. Added sugars, the recommendation is less than 10% of your calories per day. So, mm -hmm. I miss those commercials. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a commercial of when you're drinking like sodas, it just, it's just like drinking sugar. But I tried to scale this analogy back. 
okay, so it's not only the packets of sugar, but beverage choices could be a source of this. So a packet of sugar contains about a teaspoon of sugar, which is four grams of carbohydrates for um, carbohydrate exchange or carbohydrate serving. It's about 15, so about four teaspoons regardless. Um, in one 12 ounce can of soda, there are 10 to 11 teaspoons of sugar. And now these, there's a lot of sodas that come in bottles. So it's probably, that's 20. So almost double of that. Instead of doing the added sugars from our beverages, we want to choose fresh fruits instead. And just to share that food labels are changing and it should be more clear as to how much added sugar is in a product. Before, when it said sugars, it was very confusing um, that previously or how was it how it is now is that sugar's number below the fiber underneath the total carbohydrates is what is what we call monosaccharides, a chemical form. So it's basically a simple sugar. So they were trying to single that out. And this was very confusing when it came to dairy products because lactose is one of those sugars. Okay, saturated fat, you know, it's that marbling on that thick cut of steak. The saturated fat should be limited. It is harder for our body to digest and tend to build plaque on our arteries, thus increasing the risk for heart disease. I left in between there in terms of building the plaque, raising your cholesterol that we're all watching. And I tried to get fancy with this next word, bacon, bacon, is, is a fat. I'm sorry, I can't consider it a meat. Because once you fry that pound of bacon, you don't get much meat. But probably the more alarming component of fat is trans fats. It's not really, I mean, it is found naturally in some foods, but more often we see it added and we see it added in processed foods because it's like a preservative. Unfortunately, it does not preserve our bodies. Instead, we want to choose unsaturated fats or mono and polyunsaturated fats, which include the fish and nuts and seeds have unsaturated fat. Okay, salt across the board, across all most ages. Please, no salt shaker at the table. The recommendation for salt, we actually need 800 milligrams a day. That's the amount. But the recommendation of how much we should take in is about 2,300 milligrams, which is the equivalent to the amount of sodium in one teaspoon of salt. The problem is as we age, our taste buds are not as sharp and it seems like it takes more salt or uh, we want more salt to make the food taste better and not as bland. So that's why, it, well, they did have a separate section in that video I was not able to play about using herbs and spices. We want to use it to flavor our diet. And I just want to share there are some herbs and spices with additional benefits. And if some of us are taking turmeric to reduce inflammation, you can use ginger for symptoms of nausea and lemon juice. I've used it to decrease the sweetness in certain foods it can also enhance flavor excuse me courtney yeah just letting you know you have about five minutes left okay i just have i think two more slides thank you okay alcohol limits i just want to share it's two drinks or less in a day for men one drink for women please don't put yourself at risk for any falls car crashes or other injuries and it may affect the way your medication works Shopping and eating out, do you want to think in terms of general categories of food, not individual foods? So did you get your fruits, your vegetables, your grains, your protein, and your dairy? Okay. 
And I just said, when you're preparing food from the outside, the way to cut back on sodium is to ask for sauces on the side. If your portion is large, separate half or another meal. But please remember for food safety, it should not be eaten probably more than five days. Okay. Lastly, to remember to stay active, whether it's walking, gardening, swimming, taking part in a dance class, staying active can perhaps help you remain independent. And I didn't get to stick this in any earlier, but reduce those pressure injuries. I get concerned. We need to move. Making, But overall, we should try to make small changes because they help you stick with it. Anytime you want to make bigger changes, please talk to your primary care provider. And remember, it's never too late to make changes. I guess the easiest way is by getting my email. Or I do have a phone number. My work number is the easiest to remember. You can call and leave me a message if I'm not there. I'm sorry. My work phone number is 432-7777. It's a lucky sevens. <laughs> and my email is satokk at hawaii.edu. Wonderful. Yeah. And and if anything, you know, you can always reach out to one of us or, or Vicky and uh, we can get you in touch as well. So thank um, you. Yeah, no big deal. Thank you so much for that. Um, food is very important. So <laughs> we got to we got to think about that. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's certainly uh, where I've been less active a bit. And thankfully, I, I don't think I've gained those 20 pounds, but <laughs> sometimes it's hard not gaining those 20 pounds. Um all right, so let's, uh, you know, uh, first I will remind you that uh, we are on Facebook. Hawaii Association of the Blind is on Facebook. You can find us, uh, I mean, you can just look it up on Google, Facebook, Hawaii Association of the Blind. We will pop up right away, but facebook.com slash Hawaii Association of the Blind. Um, I was just looking right now. We're, we're posting as this is going on. So we're active on there. You can give us a like, a follow, and uh, you'll keep up to date with what we're doing and uh, future events and whatnot. So go, go check that out if you haven't already. Um, let's uh, give out just a couple quick uh, door prizes here before we move on to uh, the next uh, guest speaker. So uh, let's see, who do we have and what are we giving away? Uh, all right, so we've got another ooh, $25 Visa gift card. That's a nice one. And this was donated by, oh, okay, Vicky and Jim Kennedy. Thank you so much, guys. That is a great donation. Uh, and this is going out to... Uh, let's see, Jamie Young, Jamie Young. So congratulations, Jamie. Um, and we're going to do one more before we move on. And let's see, what are we giving away? Uh, we've got, oh, okay. Three more of those wonderful handmade uh, masks that are by our very own Mona Yamada. Uh, thank you so much, Mona, for making those. And uh, those are going out to... Clifford Miyashiro. Clifford, I remember meeting you at last year's convention, and I, uh, I think uh, we walked over to the, uh, the little uh, breakfast table, which unfortunately we do not have one this year. <laughs> but but uh, congratulations, Clifford. So maybe, maybe next year we'll have that breakfast table, hopefully. All right, let's see. Moving on to the uh, next guest speaker. Uh, let's see. We are talking next up. We are talking about... Uh, advanced uh, directives another very important topic and uh our guest speaker is a uh, registered nurse and uh advanced uh care planning coordinator at the uh queen's medical center and uh her name is Lori uh 
Protzman. Laurie Protzman, welcome. Thanks, Tony. Today's about making sure that when you become very ill or those who are important to you in your life, that you don't make it ain't the way to die. This is, today is about making this a transition uh, for loved ones that is the way that they would want their end of life to look like. So that's where we're headed. Um, so why is this important? Uh, it's important because none of us know when we might be suddenly become very ill. Uh, it's not always old age. It's not always chronic illnesses. Sometimes it can be a very sudden event. So we need to consider doing our planning well in advance of any event. Uh, by doing so, it helps us find our voice and share our wishes. So if we do become very sick, others know what is important to us, what we would and would not want. And by doing so, it can ease the burden for others who are having to make tough choices sometimes because they didn't know what was actually desired. So on the screen, for those of you who are able to see it, I have a picture of a young girl in critical care on a ventilator. And as you can suspect, no one ever thinks about this happening to young people. But the need to know what's important to anyone can should be something that's thought about as early as age 18 when the advanced health care directive can become a legal document. So others who might be put into this uh, unfortunate situation could at least have the gift of knowing what their loved one would or would not have wanted. So, you know, Family Feud, you know, if we could play this game um, and, and we pick the number one answer to these two questions, how do people want to die? Where do people want to die? And if I could survey you, I suspect most of you would say the same thing. Most of us would want to die at home. That's the number one answer. And how do people want to die? When I ask this, I get a lot of questions like quickly, painlessly, but actually the number one answer in our sleep. Now, ideally, that would make sense, but as you can suspect, not very many of us get that wish. Uh, 5% of us will um, have that type of death where it's just sudden, we fall asleep and we don't wake up. 95% of us are going to have something quite different. It's kind of what I call the dwindles for most of us where we have either a chronic serious illness and we sort of just dwindle away or um, with age, simply old age. So if we aren't going to be able to die in our sleep in all likelihood, and if we want to die at home, it's going to take some planning. And this is the American end of life way, which is just the opposite of what I just shared with you. Over 75 or 70% of us will die in institutions across the country. And in Hawaii, it's actually 80%. When we look at all 50 states, we're fifth worst for dying at home. In other words, 45 states are a lot better off dying at home than we are. And when I ask people if they can um, tell me why they think that is, ultimately, I believe it comes down to culture. Uh, because talking about end of life and dying is bocce in our local culture. It's not easily talked about, many times avoided. And if we don't have these conversations, then oftentimes unwanted care, unwanted suffering, and unwanted costs are going to be a natural um, outcome. And nearly 20% of deaths um, will occur in intensive care and of patients who are actually or are actually um, shortly after discharge. In other words, people who are in ICU or discharge, 20% of these individuals 
um, are not going to die where they wanted to die or shortly after. 5% of us, um, of patients, will create half of our healthcare costs. So very few people tapping into a large majority of our healthcare funds. And a third of this of these dollars are actually being spent in the last month of life, when in all likelihood, end of life was nearing, but because there was no plan, because there was no agreement amongst uh, families when the patient can't express their wishes, um, deaths in ICU uh, uh, are often happening. And over time, we're finding that we're treating the older generations more intensely, rather than coming to the realization that death and dying is a natural part of the aging process, we end up seeing a lot of our elders admitted at end of life with strokes, with um, all kinds of serious complications related to their aging process that probably, again, might not have been what was desired. So we have a lot of work that we need to do. And so that's why we plan. Um, I often hear people say, well, I don't know what I want, but, uh, you know, I'll decide at a later time. But the reality is half of us aren't going to even be able to participate in our own end of life decisions when it comes because we'll either be too sick and frail um, or too demented. And without a plan, the medical default is always to treat. If you show up in the ER then, and physicians um, don't know what the plan is, they will turn to families and say, do you want us to do everything? And you can guess the vast majority of time, the families are freaked out, they're scared, they don't know what's happening, they know they don't want their loved one to suffer, so their answer to that question, do everything, is yes. And in all likelihood, they have no clue what that do everything means, whereas we in healthcare do, and we take off running. Uh, in a crisis is never the time to be making these kinds of decisions. Um, because we risk making medical errors um, and providing unwanted care and, and unwanted suffering. So it makes us end up having to think we understand what is wanted rather than what was actually wanted. And someone's ringing my doorbell, so I will just have to um, ignore it, but I'm sorry because they're being very persistent. Um, so confronting mortality is uh, is about the fact that patients and families often fear talking about um, end of life. And even physicians are not necessarily comfortable with having these conversations. And so um, knowing that um, when doctors don't, even if they know the odds, they often find it very difficult to talk about it. So it behooves us then as family to start these conversations early so we have the opportunity to speak with those who matter to us to know what truly is wanted when mortality is the natural outcome. There's a large study that was done by the Conversation Project back in 2012, and I suspect we have improved a little bit, but what it says is, have you documented your wishes and although 82% of those surveyed said, yeah, I think it's really important to put my wishes in writing, only about a quarter of the people surveyed had actually done it. And have they talked with their loved ones about end-of-life care? Nine out of 10 Americans say, yeah, I think it's really important to do that, but only about 30% have actually done that as well. 
And finally, have you had a conversation with your doctor? Again, those surveys said 80% said, I think if I was really ill, it would be important to talk to my doctor about end-of-life care, but only about 7% have said their physicians and they have had this conversation about the treatments they would or would not want if they're very ill. So similar to a hurricane, advanced care planning is um, very much the same. When we know that there's a hurricane on the horizon, you know, the media tells us, get prepared, be informed, take action, uh, keep in contact with people who are important to you. Well, very similarly, end of life is the same. Uh, it's like a hurricane coming. We don't know if it's going to be a whopper and come on like a huge one or if it's just kind of slowly come on shore and we're going to drift away. But if we follow the same sense of being prepared uh, keeping everyone informed, taking the necessary action by doing a directive, and keeping in contact with a, your physician, your family members, as your life and choices change, can help um, avoid some of the disaster that can come with end of life. So, if I was to ask you uh, as, a, as a patient, or let's say a family member, or healthcare workers, what is a good death? What often um, occurs is that you're going to get a different answer from everybody. The patient may respond to that question, I just want to be comfortable, no pain, uh, and asleep. Whereas the family might say, well, we don't want to give that morphine because we want to spend the time with them and have conversations. And we in healthcare might say, well, maybe if we try one more round of chemo. So it's like, what are we going to do? Everybody's coming at it from a different perspective. Everyone's values are different. So who are we going to listen to if we don't know what's actually desired? Having this conversation, getting it started is probably the toughest part of the job. So firing a warning shot is like telling others, I have something important I want to talk to you about. Here are some um, warning shot statements that you might consider by asking your loved one if it's about them that you need to find information or sharing about yourself. What's important in your life? Or what am I hoping for? Are you hoping for? Or what are you hoping to avoid? What do you think is going to happen next, knowing this disease that you're living with? What worries you most? And then maybe what would make the quality of your life unacceptable? All those kinds of opening statements can help you begin and converse with loved ones or share with your loved ones what matters to you. And it's not about the form as much as it is about the conversation. Even if you don't put your wishes in writing, at least by talking about things, the things that matter in your life and what you would or would not want can help avoid unnecessary suffering later for you and your family. But a healthcare directive is really the key. And right at the top of the Hawaii Advanced Healthcare Directive, I think is the most important part, which is, who do you choose to be your spokesperson if you're no longer able to be that voice? Uh, it's called a healthcare power of attorney or designation of agent. Um, you can have as many people as you want. What I would discourage you from doing is entering on the top part of the form a series of people 
um, saying this, that, and another person, John, Jane, and Mary, because that means that they must reach consensus when it comes time to make a decision. And I can tell you from years of experience that in a crisis time, consensus is not easy to gain. So instead, they should be listed in the order in which you feel it's important that they speak your wishes. Now, a little bit more about the healthcare agent. Their job is to speak as if they are you and assure your wishes are carried out and make judgment calls if there's no um, directive uh, exists. And it doesn't have to be a family member, but key to that is that first statement. They should be willing to follow your wishes, even if they disagree. And that means sometimes you have to look um, outside of the spouse or or your children um, for that person or minimally to make sure that you're talking to them about your wishes and asking the question, are you willing to follow my wishes? So if we don't have a healthcare power of attorney, it leaves it up in the air. In the state of Hawaii, we don't have any process that says the natural first person is going to be the spouse and then the children. We don't have that in our law. Uh, What we have instead is legally authorized representatives where anyone who voices an interest in um, being that person and speaking your wishes can gather and share what they think should be done. Well, as we all know, best thoughts and intentions don't always work out. Always better to have an advanced directive speaking your wishes. And when do we use it? It is only when we believe someone is truly at the end of life with an incurable, irreversible condition that will probably result in their death in a relatively short period of time, or they're not able to make any of their own, um, communicate any of their wishes, either verbally, non-verbally, in writing, and likely will never again be able to do so, and that anything we would try would be very um, burdensome and likely very few benefits. Then and only then would we want to know, would you want your life, um, healthcare measures to prolong your life to be stopped or withheld, or would you prefer that they continue to prolong your life as long as possible? And on the directive, you'll notice that there's a statement that says within the limits of generally accepted healthcare standards. And what that means is it replaces the word futility. So if two physicians Despite the fact that you've indicated you want your life prolonged, if two physicians are in agreement that you are now actively dying, they do not have to continue at that point. Another part of the advanced directive is artificial nutrition and hydration. And this is not an IV. This is actually being fed by tube. Um, And there's a part on the directive where you can indicate that under all circumstances you want it, or you can scratch it out like I encourage people to do um, and just allow people to understand, follow your wishes that say you do or do not want your life prolonged. Because once a, a feeding tube is placed, unless the patient is able to regain the ability to safely swallow, this is not a tube that um, is placed in the stomach that is allowed to be discontinued because family members think it's now the patient is suffering. It's been too long. We never thought it would take this long. So it is a permanent tube and only two physicians again in agreement that you're dying are allowed to discontinue it. Relief from pain is on here. And just to let you know, it says, even if it might hasten my death, but that's not the law that we have in the state of Hawaii, our care, our choice. That's a whole different subject that I won't get into. This is about making sure that you're kept 
comfortable um, if you're in pain or discomfort. The reason we have in there hasten death is sometimes some diseases we have to increase the dosing closer to end of life. And that means the patient is probably no longer awake and eating and drinking. So yes, indeed, um, end of life might be hastened in that at that point. Section E of our directive is what's important to me. I love this section because this takes a very black and white document and makes it gray. And it says, these are the things you need to know uh, about me, what I find of value in my life, what's important to me, when I would not want my life prolonged. And I'm just going to refer you to two sites. The kokuamao.org is a wonderful resource for um booklets where you could use to think about the types of things that are important. And my favorite is a game called Go Wish. And if you go online, you can do a computer game and it has 36 choices that are typically chosen by people. And you can look at these cards, pick and choose, and you could add those um, cards by writing out those thoughts onto your own directive. Where things like to, to die um, peacefully, naturally, with my family, uh, painless, all kinds of wishes are able to be um, written into that air of what's important to me. Making it legal, two ways. You can either have it notarized um, or you can have two witnesses, but they have to be 18 or older. They cannot be anyone you listed as your healthcare agent, nor any of us in the healthcare field um, acting in those roles. Um, and they shouldn't be gaining inheritance rights if you choose them as a witness. Now, the POLST is the second document I just want to touch on. And the POLST stands for Provider Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. How it differs from the advanced directive is this way. In the event there's an emergency and you call 911, this is the form that directs the emergency responders to what they may or may not do on the way to the hospital. It, it tells them if you've already died, no heartbeat, not breathing. Do you want them to initiate CPR or do not attempt that resuscitation? The second part talks about, okay, so I'm still alive. I'm breathing, have a heartbeat. How aggressive on the, on the way to the hospital do I want them to be? And it gives you three different choices. One, each one more aggressive and more treatment measures uh, being initiated. And um, then there's also a section on artificial nutrition that um, directs people um, to the same topic we just talked about. And this form, although it started in by the paramedics, firemen in the field, it ends at the door to the ER when then the advanced healthcare directive where a physician can speak with the healthcare agent, power of attorney, begins. But it's a guidepost until you get to the ER and in the ER just to kind of understand where the patient or the family are coming from. Uh, um, so the pulse is a 911 order and it lets you direct the treatments you do and do not want. Um, it's not meant for everyone, only the people who are seriously ill. I liken it to the question, would it surprise me if my patient died in the next year or two? Um, and I like to have it on hand for my patients with um, advanced age, usually late 80s sometimes, uh, or the, certainly by the 90s, I like to make sure that it's on hand. Uh, so we talked about the parts. 
Um, important part are the signatures, and here the discussion should be with the patient when they're able or their legally authorized representative. And that means, are they the power of attorney, are they the guardian, are they who the patient chose as their surrogate? And only if the patient is not able to tell us who speaks for them or we have a doc, don't have a document called the advanced directive, then we have to look for consensus of interested people. And this is challenging to get all the voices in the room at the same time to make a determination of what's important to them. It has to be signed by both the physician or advanced practice nurse and the patient or family um, to make this a legal document. It's recommended that it be kept on the refrigerator or posted at the bedside if someone is bedridden. Uh, it does not have to be lime green, but most of the organizations and physician offices, that's the color it is because um, it's easily seen. We should have extra copies to give to the uh, emergency responders so you can keep the original. Uh, again, the resources I want to point you out to at kokuamau.org. If you go online, you can download the Pulse, the advanced directive, other wonderful documents on tube feeding and questions about CPR, um, a wonderful resource that you can go to to find out more information about this because ultimately everyone has the right to have their voice heard. And if we start to have these conversations with those who matter in our lives or theirs and consider documenting your wishes on an advanced directive so your family, friends, and we in healthcare workers know your wishes, we go a long way towards making sure it ain't the way to die uh, happening to you. So that's what I have to share. My um, email address is lproxman, my name, at queens.org and my office number. I only work part-time, so I don't always answer. 691-7716. And I know I'm nearly out of time, so I'm going to leave it up to you guys to say, do I answer a question or not? Yeah, we do have time for questions. Um, I don't really have any experience with like the legal, you know, dealing with lawyers and such. So I'm just wondering how I would go about getting um, a power of attorney for health care um, to be like a spokesperson or, you know, have that kind of um, medical decision making power. Good. So, um, Vicki, it's not necessary to have an attorney involved in this at all. You can download the form yourself. It's your document. Only you can do it for yourself. We cannot do it uh, an advanced directive for anyone else. Um, if if um, seeing the form is difficult, you can have anyone you want write on the form your choices as they review it with you. And then it only requires your actual signature to make it a legal document following the two steps that I said, either having um, a notary as you sign or two witnesses. Wait, where is the, um, like, where do I get the form? K-O-K-U-A-M-A-U dot O-R-G. You can download the form online there or from your primary care. They'll have it as well. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. Uh, Laurie, I, this is Jim Kennedy. Um, hey, Jim. I just, I really am impressed with uh, what you had to say. I'd like to encourage everybody to, to think seriously about this. Vicki and I went through this in just the last uh, oh, three or four months. And uh, it is a, a difficult thing to discuss, but you have to start somewhere. And you don't need to have wave forms in front of people. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, like you got to answer right now. Just start the discussion. 
The other thing I wanted to say, is it coincidence that you followed the nutrition presentation here? <laughs> I was thinking about the pounds that I've put on at home with COVID. Me too. I'm going to have to talk to Vicki about that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We have Natalie with a question. Okay. Yes. Hello. Thank you. Very informative. Uh, just a question for everybody else. Could you phonetically... Uh, say your email address? Sure. Um, L-P-R-O-T-Z-M-A-N at Queens, Q-U-E-E-N-S, plural, dot O-R-G. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Natalie. Okay, and our last hand up for right now is Deborah. Okay. Uh, thank you. Great job. Thank you. I just wanted to ask... Um, what was the name of that website where you could go that would explain things like the feeding tube and all these things that you might not really know, yep. <laughs> know how to yep. answer? Yep, Kokuamau, K-O-K-U-A-M-A-U dot O-R-G. It's the um, uh, organization um, sanctioned by the state of Hawaii for hospice and palliative care. And they're the wonderful resource, not just for end of life, but for um, this information that I've been sharing with you. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Wonderful. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much, Vicki, for the opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we are right on time and we're almost done with our daytime program. Uh, but uh let's do just a few door prizes before we get to our last speaker for the uh, daytime program so let's see what are we giving away here uh all right first up we have another 25 dollar starbucks gift card and that was donated by oh I, I believe this is another one yeah by cynthia hirakawa thank you so much for that you're going to make somebody happy, and that somebody is uh, Jody Asato. Jody Asato. Congratulations, Jody, and thank you again to Cynthia for that uh, gift card. All right, and we're going to do another one here. Uh, let's see. What are we giving away here? This is another uh, $25 ooh, Visa gift card by, I believe, yep, this is, a, again, another one by uh, Vicky and uh, Jim Kennedy. Thank you again, Vicky and Jim. So this one is going to Norman, Norman Ota. Congratulations, Norman. You're getting a gift card. And let's do one more. And then after that, we'd have two left. But I'll save that for either the end or we might even throw it around at the banquet. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. But um, here's, here's the last one for this little break here. So uh, this prize is a uh, talking, uh, oh, Okay, it's a talking blood pressure monitor, and uh, this was donated by Sharon Ige, and this one is going to, dun, 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 it's going to uh, Kyle Lacanci, Kyle Lacanci, so thank you so much, Sharon, and congratulations, Kyle, and uh, like I said, we do have a couple more, and those are some pretty nice ones. So I'll, I'll, I'll save those for the next time around. But uh, let's let's get into our, our next speaker, last one of the daytime program. And continuing with this theme of general you know, health and wellness. Um, and uh, so this one, we're going to be talking about a, a certain sleep disorder that I, I was not familiar with. So I'm, I'm going to learn a little bit here in this uh, presentation. Uh, and uh, so 
This person is from uh, Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and uh, she is a registered uh, clinical nurse and an educator. And her name is Sharon. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I still got Sharon Ege on the mind. <laughs> Shauna Jato. Jato, I'm sorry if I got your last name there. Jato? Yes, that's correct, Antonio. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that introduction. Hello, everyone. And yes, my name is Shauna Jatho. I'm a clinical nurse educator with Vanda. And my role is to be able to go out and educate our visually impaired, totally blind community on a very rare condition called non-24. That's N-O-N-24. I'm going to give you a little overview today of what that condition is, who may be affected by it, um, go through a little bit in detail of the symptoms, and then we'll open up for any questions or um, anyone would like to share some comments. Uh, non-24 is short for non-24 circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder. So we've narrowed it to non-24 for short. It's an easier term to remember and understand. The key word in that condition is circadian. And that's what I'm going to start to talk about is what exactly is circadian, the meaning of that. Uh, what is our circadian rhythm? Meaning what's happening inside of our body that's causing the symptoms of non-24. The three main symptoms are difficulty falling asleep at night, difficulty getting a full night's sleep, and or difficulty staying awake during the day. You don't have to have all three symptoms. And then these symptoms may come and go. So let's talk about circadian. It's spelled C-I-R-C-A-D-I-A-N. If we break down that word circadian, circa means approximate or about, and diaz means day. So circadian is approximately one day. So the definition of circadian rhythm is it's a biological rhythm. Biological means something happening inside of our body, and it's lasting approximately 24 hours. So that word approximate is very important. For most of us, we have each of us has a circadian rhythm that lasts a little longer than 24 hours. So for an example, you may have a circadian rhythm timing of 24 hours and five minutes. Our body lives in a 24-hour world. You know, our clocks follow a very strict 24-hour timing system. And for most of us, it's a little, our circadian rhythm timing is a little longer than 24 hours. I'll circle back to this point and it'll make a little bit more sense here. Keep in mind that all of the cells in our body follows a circadian rhythm. So our sleep and wake cycle is just one type of circadian rhythm. To name a few other examples of circadian rhythms is our appetite. Our body gives us cues or signals when it's hungry. Our body temperature is a circadian rhythm. Our body temperature is usually cooler in the evening while we're resting or sleeping and warm during the day while we're up moving around and active. Our hair and nail growth. Our hair and nails tend to grow more at night versus during the day. So that gives you a few examples there to know that not only with our sleep and wake, but there's other types of circadian rhythms where our body is set to 
follow a routine, to give us signals to do things at certain times. So with our sleep and wake circadian rhythm, for most of us, it's very important to have that routine sleep schedule so that we have a really good quality of life. So how does our body know when it's day and when it's night? Our bodies need to get a signal from the external environment to tell us when it's day and when it's night. And our bodies get this through light, primarily through light. And our body prefers it through natural sunlight, but we could also sense light artificially means like electricity, the rooms in our homes, where if we have our lights on, that can signal the light perception there. And how does our body allow us to get this light perception? Light comes in through specialized cells in the back of the eye and our retina, which then transmits a signal from the back of the eye to our master body clock in our brain. So the official term for our master body clock is suprachiasmatic nucleus. But the lay term, master body clock, easier term to understand. So this light follows this pathway from the back of the eye to the master body clock in the brain. So when our body starts to sense the light, then our body is programmed to where we're able to start to wake up. When it gets to be nighttime, then our body perceives less light and then allows us to start to fall asleep. So that's naturally what we would want to happen. What, what this light does is it erases this extra time that we have every day. So that example of if we have a circadian rhythm timing of 24 hours and five minutes, what light does is erases that extra five minutes and it puts us back in sync with the 24-hour world that we live in. So it does this every day, every 24 hours. For those of us who are either totally blind or have limited light perception, we're more at risk of developing non-24 because of the lack of enough or any light perception to get that signal to our brain. So what happens with those individuals who have non-24 is their body starts running on its own time. It doesn't have the ability to erase or reset every day, erase that extra five minutes of that example. So our body basically hangs on to that extra five minutes and it starts shifting and drifting our sleep and wake cycle, which then leads to the symptoms of non-24. So that gives you a little background knowledge of, um, you know, what's happening inside of our body that's causing the symptoms. So let's talk a little bit about in detail about the three main symptoms. So all of us has a circadian rhythm cycle. And again, it may be different for each of us as far as how long it takes us to get through a cycle. For one of us, it may be a month. For another one of us, it may be two months or longer to complete a full cycle. So let's the first main symptom, talk about that. The difficulty falling asleep at night. So if you're in the beginning or near the end of your cycle, you'll probably fall asleep around your bedtime. So if it's 10 o'clock, as the days and nights go by and you're shifting or drifting your cycle because of the lack of light perception, 
over time, it may take several weeks even into your cycle that where you may find it difficult to fall asleep. It may take you an hour or a few hours to fall asleep at night. So that's the first main symptom. The second is difficulty maintaining that sleep, difficulty getting a full night's sleep. So let's say by the time you fall asleep, uh, you may have slept for an hour, a few hours, and then you're back up. It's in the middle of the night. You're wide awake. And it's difficult to fall back asleep. Or depending on where you are in the cycle, you may not be able to fall back asleep. And then the next thing you know, it's morning time. And then the third main symptom, difficulty staying awake during the day. I'll give the example of, let's say it's 11 o'clock in the morning. If your body's on the completely opposite cycle, then your body is telling you that it's 11 o'clock at night. So even though it's 11 o'clock in the morning, and at that time, most of us want to be awake, moving around and active. But if your body's on the completely opposite cycle, then your body's getting the cues that it's tired. I want to go to sleep, but it's at the wrong time. And that's due to, again, the lack of light perception and your body is shifting and drifting and running on its own time. Those are the three main symptoms there. Individuals with non-24, this is a very chronic condition and it's cyclical. So meaning those symptoms can come and go. There may be some days and nights where you don't have any difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or staying awake during the day. To the other extreme where you may have to take a few naps during the day or you're falling asleep and it's uncontrollable or you're up in the middle of the night. This is when it greatly affects the quality of your life. If it's family time, social activities, school, work, whatever it is that's important to you. Um, when you have this erratic sleeping pattern and it's chronic, and you have vision impairment or totally blind, then know that the symptoms may be due to non-24. So a few facts is non-24 affects up to 70% of individuals who are totally blind, 70%. It's a very high percentage because of the lack of any light perception. But know that you can have some light perception and still develop non-24. And it affects both men and women equally at any age. Usually the time an individual starts to develop vision impairment, you may notice some sleep, erratic sleeping patterns. And if your vision symptoms worsen, then your sleep struggles may worsen. Know that non-24 is different from sleep disorders. So to give an example of sleep apnea is a common sleep disorder. The symptoms, some of the symptoms of non-24 and sleep apnea can be similar, but the root cause is different. So with sleep apnea is lack of oxygen to the brain. With non-24, it's lack of light to the brain. So you can have similar sleep symptoms with other disorders, but to know with non-24, it's because of the lack of light perception, not being able to get that signal to the brain. So if we struggle with sleep and it's chronic 
and you're wondering, what do I do? You know, what is my next step? I'm, I'm just hearing about this for the first time. Or I was, you know, vaguely familiar with non-24, but I didn't have sleep struggles then, but I do now. What do I do about that? We have what you call health educators. And what our health educators role is to educate and cater to what your needs are. Do you want to learn about non-24? How in-depth do you want to get as far as knowledge on non-24? We can mail you, email you literature, braille, audio, large print, so that you can take the next step to learn more about non-24. And then they're there for your support to answer any questions that you have or share in sleep struggles with. It's also very important that our doctors are educated on non-24. And no, because this is such a rare condition, um, what we have, what we call our account managers. And our account managers can set an appointment to educate or answer any questions that your doctor may have on a scientific level of what non-24 is. So if you'd like to learn more about non-24, and or you'd like to have your doctor educated on non-24, then that's the benefit of having the health educator. It's a free program. Um, We do this because we want to increase this awareness and provide this support. And so that these individuals who are suffering with sleep, and like I say, have vision impairment or are totally blind, can communicate this with your doctor, have that conversation so that you are diagnosed and treated appropriately. If you'd like to get set up with a health educator, you can reach me directly at 202-538-0396. And I know we're all on different time zones here, but that's my work cell. So I have a very flexible schedule. So if you reach out to me, you may have you know personal questions, confidential, but just a few minutes of your time to gather some information so our health educator can reach out to you. And I'm sure, I hope that Vicki um, could share my contact information too. If It would probably be easier if you had her email contact info um, and then Vicki could pass that information along to me. I'll repeat my number. So that way, if if someone is jotting that down, it's 202-538-0396. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of ACB of Hawaii. All right. Well, thank you so much, Shauna. Um, So yeah, very important thing there that, uh, like I said, I wasn't aware of it, but no, yeah. Thank you for educating us about that. Um, So, uh, Shauna was the last speaker of our day 10 program. I, I do just want to say one quick thing here. So thank you so much to everybody who uh, put this together. That goes from ACB to, you know, Vicky and Jim and everybody in the committee. And, uh, you know, I was concerned that, oh my God, I'm going to have to be like uh, jumping around and dancing here and playing ukulele and stuff to entertain you guys when uh, guests, uh, you know, ran a little quick in their in their speech. But thankfully the the schedule was just wonderfully put together. Everything, you know, was... was uh, in themes and it all just flowed smoothly. So I barely had to do anything. Uh, what do you think? Uh, should I give the last two uh, door prizes or should we do that in the evening? Um, how many, how many door prizes do we have left? We have two more. 
Okay, why don't we hang on to the two? All right, so yeah, in that case, then I, I think I, I am all done. Art, if you want to add anything else at the end to close out uh, the daytime program. Currently unmuted. So again, folks, um, you know, thank you for being here and uh, participating in our daytime program for the HAB convention. And I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did uh, and that you found the information informative as well as um, fun uh, or entertaining you know, to some extent. Um, you know, that kind of was our goal. Now. You know, we wanted to make sure that everybody had a little something. Oh, excuse me, my, my microphone. Zoom. Has new and so, anyhow, 